live. Welcome to the program. The phones are open if you want to join us here tonight. The number is 603-283-6160. That's 603-283-6160. There's a pretty big story that I've been wanting to hear about for some time, ever since Oregon did their decriminalization, I believe it was in 2020, of small possession of pretty much all drugs. Um, we talked about it, of course, here on Free Talk Live as uh, longtime advocates of ending the insane war on drugs. Uh, this was heralded, and I think rightly so, as a step in the right direction, a big step, and one that, of course, had been taken in Portugal almost 20 years prior to that to much success. So the question was, was Oregon going to have a similar level of success as Portugal had done? We're going to look into that here tonight. The Atlantic uh, has done a detailed story about it, and I want to get into it. But here with you, it's Ian. And Jay Noon. Indeed. So that's coming up. Um, but I did just get back from the Barbie movie with uh, Bonnie and I went to see it. She got all dressed up, and, or should I say dolled up. And she looked very nice, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I have to say it was uh, a lot of fun. I mean, having been your typical boy growing up, I was certainly not playing with Barbies. I didn't care for Barbies at all. I don't know much about the history, don't know much about the, the doll, but I really enjoyed the uh, the Barbie movie. And if you can look past the, the – they'd beat you over the head with messages about the patriarchy. I mean, it definitely does have a, a political was it woke? Uh, message. Was it I mean, I think you could definitely say it was it was woke. Okay, um, but it was a lot of fun and it was very very entertaining. So if you know what you're getting into, I think uh, you're going to have a good time with it. Just you know, be prepared for the the political messaging of it. If you can look past it, I think you'll enjoy it. So that happened uh, today, and then again, as I said, I wanted to get into this story here about the decriminalization of hard drugs. We've seen. Over the decades, a lot of work being put into just simple decriminalization of the soft stuff, specifically cannabis. There hasn't really been much else. We've seen a few towns or cities here and there uh, decriminalizing magic mushrooms or psychedelic uh, mushrooms. And they've had great success with that, from what I've seen in places like Denver, um, I think Oakland, Santa Cruz. There's even a couple of Massachusetts towns that did mushroom decriminalization. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, I okay. heard about that. Yep. Yep. So, uh, and that's been very, very successful. They've those uh, those efforts have been led by, in many cases, military veterans who've come in in front of uh, city councils and they've testified and said, you know, the their PTSD has been cured by the use of magic mushrooms. I mean, there's just some amazing stories out there, and of course, we've talked about the studies that have been done on PTSD and you know, serious uh, depression, anxiety, things like this that people have been suffering and that they actually, when they take a dose of psychedelic mushrooms under a therapeutic environment, they can actually defeat these problems. I know three couples that were having really rough relationship issues and uh, they did um, guided essentially mushroom trips Mm. or mushroom experience, psychedelic experience uh, with a not someone someone not who isn't actually a shaman but is very like in that type of you know shaman whatever i don't even know what you call it but she's yeah. she's like a guided uh you know mushroom she's you know, had her training yeah yeah she's yeah. been to peru and done all that stuff mm-hmm. anyways uh uh and, and those couples uh, ha- uh saw 
uh, two of them at Porkfest uh, mm-hmm. this year, and they were still together. Uh, they're happy. They're okay. together. They're like, you know, um, I actually uh, have recommended some um, uh, <clears throat> this therapy to some friends of mine um, who are very, very right leaning conservative, and mm. they're like, oh, I'm not going to do that. And then, um, uh, and then another friend of mine who's a, a farmer down in Massachusetts, I recommended this to him and his wife uh, a couple years ago. They, they were having some issues and. Uh, the wife wants to do it. The husband's not mm-hmm. convinced yet. Uh, we got to work on him a little bit more. But uh, yeah, there's, uh, um, you know, the one thing I got to say about mushrooms, like people who do mushrooms, um, you know, it's uh, it shouldn't even like mushrooms should not be classified like in the same thing as you know like these heroin dr- like heroin whatever. like yeah. like people who do heroin are basically a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're 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 just a negative drain. Uh, the people who, uh, who, who, who do mushrooms, um, they're, uh, I, I know a whole bunch of people that, you know, do mushrooms recreationally, sure. uh, and they're fine. They're productive. They yep. work, you know, um, and some uh, of them even do, uh, micro dosing, which is where they take a very small amount of psilocybin, which is the yep. active ingredient in magic mushrooms. They take a very small amount of it, perhaps before a, a work day. Yep. And they, it's not enough to have a psychedelic experience, but it is enough to shift them in a, in a direction that they feel makes them more productive or something like that. There's yeah. a lot of people in like the tech industry, apparently, that are into this. So, you know how like, uh, so I have cows. So people are like, mm-hmm. oh, can I come on? They look, like mushrooms, don't look, they? Look through your cow manure. <laughs> And uh, I'll tell you, uh, right now, the, out in the forest, like all around my property, I've never mm-hmm. seen so many mushrooms. There are a lot. Well, it's a lot of been a lot We've of rain. Had a lot of rain. Yeah. And and uh, I only my pigs aren't on the forest right now. I got three little piglets. They're just in kind of a small pen. But when I had pigs uh, last couple of years, um, and I let them onto a, a new part of forest, and there's like a whole bunch of mushrooms. First thing all the pigs are doing is going after those mushrooms. Mm. They're just eating all every mushroom that they find. They just makes eat them. you wonder. And uh, and they don't die. <laughs> And, uh, and, and actually pigs and humans are, um, you know, very, um, well, pigs have a really tough digestive system, but mm. pigs and humans are super similar, mm-hmm. you know, with the way their organs are and, uh, you know, everything's aligned. In fact, when you, when you butcher a pig and you're, you know, taking the guts out, all, mm-hmm. all, all, all of those guts are sort of in the same setup, very really? similar to what a humans are. It's a, it's a mono gut system. Uh, it, 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 but pigs you know, obviously have very strong digestion. I'm not saying because a pig can eat it, a human can. Yeah, uh, be, but, be be warned. <laughs> Just let's put the disclaimer out there. Uh, if you're interested in trying these things, there's a there's a couple disclaimers you should know about. One, do your research. Go online. Go to I recommend arrowid.org. E R O W I D dot org. There's a lot of information about all kinds of drugs that you can take, both pharmaceutical and illegal, and you know you name it. Lots of good information there. Do your research first. Secondly. Do not just go pick random mushrooms no. and eat them. These could be very dangerous. The psychedelic ones are very specific ones, and you really have to know your stuff uh, to go out into the woods and, and be able to do this. So. I walked my uh, uh, fencing on my cow pasture uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I noticed that there was lots of mushrooms where the cow on, on, on the side of the fence that the cows don't have access, and I couldn't find a mm-hmm. single mushroom anywhere in the cow pen. So I haven't seen the cows eat mushrooms. I've definitely watched the pigs do it. Okay, but are I the mean, cows in there with the pigs, or are they separated? Well, they're, they're separate. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, they don't really jive. So too presumably, well. it's the cows eating the mushrooms. Is that a thing? Um, I think so because there's just no mushrooms in the cow pen. Interesting. It, uh, I just 
never see them. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're growing out of like everything, like right outside the cow pen. So I think the cows just eat them as they pop up. The only thing I can think. Well, as far as like convincing uh, conservative type people to take on uh, psychedelic mushrooms for therapy, I think that's where these soldiers come into play. Right? Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of good studies that have been yeah. done on that. Um, you put a soldier in front of a conservative, anything that comes out of his mouth, they're going to take seriously. Yeah. Right? So you just got to get them to know one of these one of these guys or two of these these people that have had these experiences and i think that would shift their their perspective instantly because they have the you know the conservative types are like oh drugs are for hippies and then if you can shift that to no it's for anybody look here's some guys who were in the military that say this actually cured their ptsd and you you know people listening to them uh it it changes minds and and my shaman friend who um uh you know uh talks about this mushroom stuff and like plant medicine is what she refers to mm-hmm. it or, or, or fungi medicine um you know uh, there's a big difference between you know some college kid you know looking to party yeah. and some guy looking to heal himself absolutely uh, using it so when your intention is healing mm-hmm. and 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 that's what you want to do and you're you're not and you do this you know like at, with an appointment with somebody guiding you um, there's like, it, it isn't like you just, you know, order some mushrooms somewhere or go find them some, buy them from some guy in a black alley and just go home and eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's more like, uh, you're doing it with, you know, in a, in a, in a specific environment, right. uh, with a specific individual who's trained in this, uh, as, as a, a, a spirit guide, uh, essentially, or, or a guide, I don't know if spirit guide is the right word, but, um, and I have I know a lot of people who have done this and nobody has negative commentary about it. Everybody's mm-hmm. even oh some people told me that th- their experience was sort of like scary yeah. uh, at, it, while it was happening because mm-hmm. they've had like these demons There's dark things and, in there and like uh, and like uh, uh, one girl was you know some really horrible stuff happened to her as a young I don't mm-hmm. know how old she was I'm, and I'm not going to say on, on air what happened to sure. her but. Um, whatever it was, you're going to peel back that brick wall or whatever that you built up over time, yep. and it's going to force you to look at it. And, and that's what the dark, you know, scary stuff is. For she was essentially abused as a as a you know as a child, as you know, mm-hmm. and a young teenager, and had no memory of this. Oh wow! And basically didn't even that's know. Crazy. But she, there was always just she was just very like emotionally. Um, it was affecting her yeah oh yeah, yeah. but she didn't know what was affecting her it was a mm-hmm. problem because she had went through this traumatizing abuse and and her mind had blocked it out but the symptoms of the abuse were still there and she, i think she did this a couple uh th- maybe three years ago now mm-hmm. and like she's really good uh, and she did two of these mushroom experiences and she's like i'm good i don't need any more i'm cool you're done uh, you know, yep, all you set know, I'm, I'm happy with life it isn't like and 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 mushrooms aren't addictive. <laughs> Who's right. addicted to magic mushrooms? You know, um, maybe there's somebody out there, but I mean, there's some there's certain addictive personalities that yeah. just want to get high or whatever. But I agree with you. It's um, I don't know what the terminology is for that. I I don't think mushrooms have the effect where you build a tolerance to them, which is a different. It's kind of sets them apart from other drugs, as I understand it. Um, you know, meaning that if you were to take marijuana or whatever or alcohol you're going to build up a tolerance you're going to need more of it to get to the same results and i don't think that that's true with mushrooms so you would think that that would result in more people being addicted to them but it doesn't seem to have like you said that doesn't seem to have that effect on people it does seem to have the effect of you're you're having some sort of a permanent change or at least semi-permanent 
if you want it, uh, in your mind, and you take your lessons back. You remember, hopefully, what it was that you were intending to uh, to remember from that from that journey, and it sticks with you. And it's an important experience, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, it wasn't mushrooms per se, but I think it was Steve Jobs, who was one of the co-founders of Apple Computers, who ranked his uh, trip on LSD, or maybe trips on LSD, which is another psychedelic drug, on, I think it was the top three experiences of his life, top three most important uh, experiences of his life. So in a lot of cases, people will have a very similar experience with, uh, with magic mushrooms, and they can put it down and never come back to it. And, and another thing happens with, uh, you know, like, like dr- for, for example, like alcohol, people have withdrawals if they don't get alcohol. Sure. Uh, cigarettes, people have major withdrawals. Uh, yes. Coffee, people have yep, major withdrawals. These are withdrawals. addictive drugs, right. And, um, you know, even like, uh, but like, you know, I don't really, like, I, I know a bunch of people who use cannabis and mm-hmm. sometimes, and, and a lot of these people will go weeks or a month or two months sometimes, or it is, they're too busy. I don't have time to do it. You know, mm-hmm. some say, and it's. It's not like they're, you know, scratching their neck being like, oh, man, I need to get some, you know, <laughs> it, it, like, but like these things like heroin and you know, opiates and like uh, cocaine and like um, uh, <laughs> caffeine, <laughs> you know, nicotine, well, I, I, maybe nicotine. I'm not sure if it's the other chemicals in the, um, you know, in the cigarettes, but uh, it's nicotine. I mean, it may be the other chemicals as well, but nicotine is an addictive chemical. I did the uh, roll your own cigarette thing for like a summer and I was smoking like one cigarette a day and I could see what the addiction was. Like I could see why people got addicted okay. to it. It definitely wasn't something I wanted to uh, to yep. continue on with, uh, but I could see it. Like it didn't it didn't hook me or anything at, at that level. I wasn't powerless to it or anything like that. But I could see why some people would have. But when you take coffee it. away from people, mm-hmm. they get they irritable. Can, mm-hmm. I, I I have a, a relative who is extremely miserable without his coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and same thing with cigarettes, and the same thing with, um, you know, the opiates. Like people who do heroin, from what I understand, will literally die from the overdose. I've heard uh, uh, from from not going from, from not, not having using, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I don't understand how that works, but it. I it's guess it's serious. a medical fact. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, so like you know, it people put like all these things in the same camp and is and it's it, ridiculous. Well, it's ignorance. It, yep. They just don't know you know any better. It is. Um, and so to get into the story here about Oregon decriminalizing hard drugs, and we're talking about cocaine, we're talking about methamphetamine, we're talking about heroin. They decriminalized all drugs, but they included the the hard stuff, right? So. What does that look like? Well, there's a story here from The Atlantic that gets into it in great detail. And this is something I've been kind of interested in, I mean, very interested in. And I'm glad it's finally, you know, there's been like a good write-up about, you know, taking different sides, looking at it from different perspectives on how this has gone. And of course, as you might imagine, the government has managed to screw this up to some extent. And so we'll get into that. Uh, here. So here it is uh, from the Atlantic's Jim Hinch. He writes three years ago, while the nation's attention was on the 2020 presidential election, voters in Oregon took a dramatic step back from America's long running war on drugs by a 17 point margin. Oregonians approved ballot measure 110, which eliminated criminal penalties for possessing small amounts of any drug, including cocaine, heroin and methamphetamine. When the policy went into effect early the next year, it lifted the fear of prosecution from the state's drug users and launched Oregon onto an experiment 
to determine whether a long-sought goal of the drug policy reform movement, decriminalization, could help solve America's drug problems. And after all, this is what we've been saying forever here on Free Talk Live as one of the few voices, I think, in mainstream media, if you want to call us that, you know, we're on broadcast radio, uh, that actually advocates for ending the insane war on drugs. Now, I think most libertarians, given the opportunity, if there was a button to press that just eliminated the war on drugs, all of a sudden the cops are no longer arresting people for possession, growing, selling, etc., I think that, you know, we would press that button in an instant because we see the destruction of the war on drugs. We see certainly that there are people who are addicted to drugs today, regardless of whether there's a war on it or not. Right. Most of the most of the video you see from uh, these skid rows all around the country. I think you've mentioned Philadelphia. Yeah. Kensington um, Street, Philadelphia. Yep. A lot of these cities, big cities have these areas where there's a bunch of dope addicts, you know, living in tents. Uh, and just stumbling around the streets and hanging over. It's such a, they call it nodding out, I think, uh, for the heroin users. Uh, maybe it's fentanyl. I don't know what it is, but it's really uh, it's really horrible to, to look at where these, these people are just, they're still standing, but they're completely bent like all the way down. Yep. And it's really weird. I actually saw somebody in Keene that was, uh, not, they weren't standing up, but they were just kind of sitting up in front of the library today and just hanging down like that person is on something. So when you and open the show, you mentioned uh, this has happened in Portugal. I wonder how decriminalization, easy, right? I wonder how easy it is to get an EBT card or to get on some form of government assistance and just get free money in Portugal. Because it is Europe. I don't know. Because the big problem here in America is, um, so all, all the things we're talking. So he, here's the problem uh, with um, the <clears throat> sort of. Drugs in general is is it's is it's being magnified and made so much worse by the fact that in America in American cities it's so easy to get on welfare. Mm. So I have asked uh, emergency medical technicians technicians these are the guys that ride around ambulances and respond. Um, I've I've asked them to uh, you know uh, how many of the the people who you give Narcan to or overdose from heroin mm-hmm. are on welfare. Because they and go through their wallet or their pockets or whatever, right? So the guy from Springfield, Massachusetts that I know, uh, and I talked to talked to actually three of these guys from Springfield because they're guys that used, one of them used to be on a fire department and mm-hmm. just guys I know yeah. from, you know. You, lived, I, you grew up in that area. Right. And uh, they're, they're EMTs and they all work in Springfield, these guys. Another guy works in Wilbraham. I talked to, and then I, another one I talked to in Manchester. They mm-hmm. all told, Manchester, New Hampshire, all told me the same thing. If the uh, guy who's either... You know, who, who, if the over if the oh, guy who overdosed has a um, guy or girl hasn't had his pockets cleaned out by his buddies, because right. usually that's what what happens is they, they pass have, out, they get robbed, they just get robbed. Yeah. Their their wallet's gone. Yeah. Um. But you know, you go look around and the wallet's on the ground and you know the IDs mm-hmm. in it and any cash is missing and the EBT card is there because I guess the EBT card has your ID on it. Or has a picture have on a it. a pin number or something. Or, or something. Yeah. I, I, so you just can't take someone's EBT right. card and use it. You have yeah. to like... You it's know. like a debit card, I think. I've never used this thing, but... And so anyways, but basically it was, yes, um, all the all the people who haven't had their pockets cleaned out have an EBT card uh-huh. yeah. on them, is what each one of these... It's, uh, it's an important question to uh, ask. Uh, ...guys uh, said to me. So in a place like Oregon, for example, it's very comfortable... To be homeless, 
Mm-hmm. California, it's very comfortable to be homeless. Seattle, yeah, sure. Um, and the, Chicago. So you have uh, these people getting free money from the state. Yep. Uh, you have them living comfortably in tents. People uh, respond to incentives, and yep. welfare is an incentive towards bad behavior. Yeah, it's uh, irresponsibility. And then you have the me- like the Meals on Wheels type thing. You know, they're, they're showing up to these drug encampments and feeding the people three mm-hmm. times a day. There's even like a, an interview of uh, a guy. He's got his face all like tattooed up, and he's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I live in California because, you know, I just all the freebies. I get up in the morning, and I... And I get high, and then I go eat breakfast. And mm-hmm. the and the, and the um, I forget what he called the what, whoever it is, it's a state agency or a city agency brings them food yeah. uh, in the morning. And then they do, doesn't have to do a thing; doesn't have to lift a finger. Yep. And and he's like, uh, he he says, I get six hundred and fifty bucks a month um, just because I'm here in California, cash money. And he's like, this is great. Yeah, it's crazy. And and there's a whole YouTube video. It's like a uh, it's like a Vice interview. It's like two years old or mm-hmm. something. And uh, so the thing is, health and human services is 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 creating the drug problem. They're creating the drug demand, uh, you know, with uh, the opiates and and, and the fentanyl. I'm going to say they're uh, making it worse. Uh, I mean, there's always going to be whether health and human services exists, whether a welfare program exists. There are always going to be people who are down on their luck people who are upset at whatever it is that's happening in life. They don't think life is fair. They're, uh, they got fired from their job. There's all kinds of bad things that are generally going to happen inevitably in somebody's life. And there's a certain type of person who takes those bad apples and then they just keep on going in a downward spiral. Right. Well, like, so, so here's the thing. Commonly your free drug money addicts, makes those people worse. Right, well, free money makes them just full blown yeah. straight up junkies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't care about anything but getting high. Uh, and, and so for example, at some point the money will run out if that doesn't, if welfare doesn't exist right? and somebody who's getting high because they want to escape from the bad things in their life will hit rock bottom, I think a little sooner. Right. And then you have this example of like all these construction workers and builders and stuff and guys that are in those work industries that use heroin, for example, there's a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of them and they work to use their drugs, uh, you know. There's more coming up here. Uh, and the number, if you want to join the show, talking about drug decriminalization, we're going to get into what has allegedly been happening in Oregon in the last three years of this experiment coming up on Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. decriminalization and especially if you live in Oregon 
where they've had an experiment going on now for three years that a lot of us have been advocating, especially those of us here on Free Talk Live for a very long time, Portugal, and they will talk about Portugal a little bit in this story coming up from The Atlantic, a very in-depth article about, well, how's it been going? They've had three years of drug decrim, has... Anything been solved? Has anything gotten better as far as drug abuse and that sort of thing? Uh, Because you have to remember there's a difference between drug use and drug abuse. And to put this into perspective for people out there, there's a difference between somebody who abuses alcohol and somebody who just has a couple of beers at the end of the night. Sure. For example, uh, there was a paving company I did a lot of work for Mm -hmm. uh, in the past, and... Uh, there was, uh, several guys on that paving crew. Uh, so I was on the side of an interstate fixing, mm, fun. fixing a paver cause they were paving, paving this interstate road. Okay. <laughs> and I walk over to the truck, the dump truck, and I open up the passenger side door to talk to the, to talk to the guy who I'm working for basically. Cause that's where he was last time. So I saw him. Mm-hmm. And that, the man who I was looking to talk to was not in the truck, uh, but the guy that was driving the truck had a needle in his arm. Oh, boy. And he was booting up. And wow. uh, and I kind of knew this guy a little bit. I, I knew that mm-hmm. this was his deal. And mm. and I'm like, hey, where's the boss? And he's like, um, uh, give me a minute. Oh, you know. God. So then he comes out of the truck and he and he helped. And I was looking for what I needed was someone to like help me do this like repair yeah. job. I couldn't do it by myself. So he comes over and he helps me, and uh, he's high on heroin, totally. Wow. Okay. And 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 he was like, he was stellar. <laughs> I, I am dead serious. This okay. guy, like, I when I worked with him several times. Wow. Yeah. Um, and he, um, functional addict. Totally. Basically. Huh. Totally amazing. He drives a you know a triaxle dump truck. You know that's got a gross vehicle weight of seventy four thousand pounds with a big old trailer behind it with that's all gets all loaded up with equipment to go you know do these jobs this is a mythical creature you're talking about here i think they're more common than people believe but you know typically when you hear about heroin junkies you hear about people who are completely useless they're laying around the house all the time they're not getting anything done the house is filthy i mean etc etc and you're saying this guy was actually a productive person. He was a super good guy to work with amazing really good um, could follow instructions really well. And, and he was a smart, mm-hmm. skilled, ambitious guy. Mm. And most of his ambition is doing the drug. Yeah. Um, he was basically, you know, sleeping in a tent. Mm. Um, but he wasn't willing to rob people to get his money. To no, do he's it. a hard worker. He worked mm-hmm. seven days a week. Uh, and so, and then there was another guy on the job site. He only worked till about two in the afternoon and they would send him home cause he was a drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he was, you know, 62. Couldn't stop him 60, from sneaking beers in, that kind of thing. He's just, yeah. I, I'm going drinking. I'm not working. You, mm-hmm. you know, you got me till two. And wow. basically the deal was, I'm starting to open up beers if you don't want me on your job site. <laughs> they just literally I knew plenty of guys home. who were just drinking on the job. Uh, so you couldn't get away with drinking on this particular okay. job. There was no way to do that. Yeah. So the kid that had to, the kid, he wasn't a kid. He was 30, a few years younger than me. Mm-hmm. But the kid who had a needle in his arm. The first, So that was like the first time I ever really saw somebody i knew like do that you know kind of like i knew he did it um i didn't know how he did it but i knew he did it uh but he was like um what i want to say here he oh so the story was that 
he would lose his CDL if he ever had if he, they ever found um, THC in his urine, mm-hmm. and so he 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 uh, which stays around a long time if you use cannabis regularly, it's going to sit with you for thirty plus days or whatever. As I, as I understand it, but a lot of these harder drugs don't stick around that long. Well, right? even they're not. So I guess they're not screening for it. But he's mm-hmm. like, oh, I take a whiz, you know. He goes, we got to do random whiz quizzes all the time. This doesn't mm-hmm. show up. Oh, interesting. I had another guy from high school tell me a similar thing. He he got into cocaine because he wow. couldn't use weed. Uh, because That's uh, crazy. of a probation issue, and he, he was being screened, you know, randomly for cannabis, and so he he moved to cocaine because he just, you know, he was one of these guys that needed something. Wow. But but the the guy that was on the paving crew, so there was a, a, a so basically like a handful of those guys on this particular paving crew that I got to know, they were all doing some level of opiate. Mm-hmm. Now hmm. uh, some of them were, t- were 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 going to the to the um, rehab center and getting their suboxone in the morning, right? Um, so that's a, you know, that's a form of opiate, is, um, yeah. from what I understand. And there's another, uh, like sanctioned, I can't remember what it's called, but Suboxone and there's a few other yeah. things that, that, that like, you know, they give you, um, and like the Suboxone is for free, you know, you just show up and get it. And, uh, it, but these guys were all functioning. They, they were all working. And, and the thing is, is like the, the guy who was putting the stuff in, in, in a needle in his arm. Uh, the way it started with him is is he uh, got in his foot run over uh, uh, like 12 years ago. Oxys or something. Uh, or like hydrocodons. Mm-hmm. Is the way he did it. I know probably 15 hardworking people that uh, I could, you know, off the top of my head right now that all started with Vicodin and, and due to a, got hooked. an injury. Yeah. And, and, and the cops, uh, the, uh, the, the doctors. You know, just pushing that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that Vicodin, uh, what was it? The um, And then the sac- doctor stops at some point because the DEA will come after him if they keep on prescribing these things. And then these guys hit the streets and they have to find another supply. Right. And then, oh, was it the Sackler family who owned the um, pharmaceutical company that got sued? Um, I forget what the pharmaceutical company's called, that they, Sackler, but they are like a, they're a, a Connecticut family. Mm-hmm. And they own some big pharmaceutical company, and they and a whole bunch of states sued them mm. over uh, pushing the opiates, and it was kickbacks to the doctors, and you know all kinds of things. To you know, there's a huge conspiracy to get get the American mainstream hooked on opiates. Mm-hmm. And, and if you know, the thing is, is and all the politicians love it because if you're doing opiates, you're not paying attention to the politician. If you have a you know, if you're a mom and a dad, and you have a you know a, a, a ch- child or a very close loved one that's hooked on opiates you're probably not paying attention to the politicians you don't have time mm-hmm. to pay attention to politicians looking for your next fix so well or even people close to yeah. you who are you know can you know imagine if your kids are you know heroin addicts you know mm-hmm. what kind of diversion is that in your life are you are you gonna right do you got even even bandwidth left to like decide who's worth voting for or, or scrutinizing your politicians so what do you think the productive guys that were dope users that you knew why didn't they fall into the welfare trap and just lay around the house? All so day? some of them have, but mm-hmm. actually, so there is a uh, couple examples now. So uh, I'll first start with the guys, and then I want to talk about women specifically, moms. But so the guys that you know ha- are are using street drugs because they got hooked on the Vicodin, or the guys that are on Suboxone, uh, Methadone was the other one. Uh, they're going to the Methadone clinic, getting their Methadone or Suboxone. Uh, and they're working, uh, and then for some reason they're able to get on disability, or mm-hmm. somehow they get on disability, or they injure themselves to the point to where they get disability. 
And a lot of these guys are a little too proud. The guys I personally they're too proud, they're too proud to take to welfare. They're raised or, in, a, in a certain way, or, or yeah. they're like conservative, yeah. you know, and like and and they're just they're not going to do that. But right. but one thing I've noticed is so one of the guys I know uh, there's a veterans benefit program that if you were like he was in Iraq and exposed to like depleted uranium mm-hmm. and stuff and had some health issues and he was. Um, framing or roofing crew and he was you know using my I don't know if he was snorting or shooting but he was using something some kind of opiate and as soon as he got this uh, veterans benefit it was like they give him like they they paid him like back like X amount of months or something Mm -hmm. so he got like a check for like 20 grand and then he was getting like I don't know if it was like four thousand a month or twenty seven hundred a month. I don't remember the exact numbers, but he was getting several thousand dollars a month. Plus, he got like a big check. Uh, that guy was dead like a year and a half later. He OD. Wow. And yeah. so, so another. Uh, so, so I know some women mm-hmm. that had children. Uh, some of them illegitimate. You know, they don't know who the dads were. weren't identifying the dad. Some of them, you know, they knew who the dads were. I think about four of these girls that I grew up with, Palmer, Massachusetts area. Uh, and if anybody who knows me, you know, knew, I mean, knows me from Palmer, they probably know at least two or three of who I'm talking about. Anyways, as soon as these, these girls had a little bit of drug issue and as soon as they were able to essentially collect the, um, you know, the, the, the child, child benefits, <clears throat> I won't say child, maybe child benefits. support, okay. but anyway, state benefits are yep. getting the EBT card or getting a government yep. assisted housing. You know, one of these things you really can't do as like a 20 something year old and unless you have a kid, mm-hmm. uh, it really helps, especially if you don't know who the kid is and you want to, you know, just claim these benefits and, you know, get this stuff. Uh, one of the girls was uh, one, one of them is dead now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually died of not an overdose, but a uh, infection. Oh, boy. Uh, and then the other girl, I saw her two years ago and I didn't even recognize her. In fact, wow. was, this is two girls. I, I hadn't seen them in years. And then I saw them and I didn't recognize them until they started talking because, you know, they just looked like like something out of like a horror zombie movie. Wow. And, you know, they like just like wasted away. They didn't have like most of their teeth were gone. Wow. They, you know, you could count every bone in their body. They are like skin and bones and and like gruesome. And, and actually, both of these girls have the same name now. They think about it. And I've known these, you know, to most of my life. And, and so talking to the ones, uh, the one girl's mom, I'm like, when did this happen? Mm-hmm. How, how did this go? She's like, well, as soon as she decided to move out of my house and start col- and go, go after, you know, for collect, collect from the uh, state. And she moved into a section eight housing mm-hmm. in Holyoke on, you know, skid row, basically. Yeah, you're going to be surrounded uh, by a bunch of scumbags. Uh, and that's where she wanted to move because yeah. that's where the dope was. Right. Uh, and as soon as she, uh, like, right there, it just went straight down. Now, now she's, like, full-time drug addict because she doesn't have to, like, you know, she doesn't have to be sober to, like, put any money together to pay rent. And when she was living with her mom, her mom wouldn't tolerate it. So she would basically do it enough to where mom didn't realize it was happening. And she was, mm-hmm. you know, working at the local Dunkin' Donuts or something. And well, don't you think, Jay, that if she'd only been arrested, that would have made things better for her? Uh, no, definitely not. She, she'd she been arrested a few times. Of course she had. I mean, I, I figured you were going to yeah. say that. In fact, uh, they've both been arrested. Yeah. yeah. All of them were arrested. And what they do as soon as they got out of jail, 
They went and they got high um, as soon as they got out. I, I mean, I guarantee you. One girl that I, another one, I, she was in jail getting the stuff. In jail. She had now a six month sentence. She had, it was check fraud. It was theft. It was mm-hmm. all kinds of things. And like, she's telling me this stuff. Oh, wow. And she was like, well, I was just given sexual favors to one of the prison guards and he just, he, and it was all woman's prison and there's male prison guards <laughs> and basically any girl that wanted to like bang a prison guard or do a, get it, something whatever she a, wants. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Uh, so, so they were able to, no problem Suboxone, no problem Methadone, yeah. and every once in a while it was a treat of some kind of like Vicodin or something. Right. Is, well, this is what the, she said. This is yet another example that is, I think, one of the most persuasive on why the war on drugs is so pointless. They can't even keep the drugs out of their own prisons. And how could anyone ever expect that they're going to be able to keep drugs out of people's hands who aren't in prison? I mean, it is an absolute fantasy. Uh, but we started this conversation by getting into this story from The Atlantic. And let me tell you, there's a lot we can talk about in here, uh, Jay. So I'm going to dig a little little deeper. Go for it. So they're talking about the d- drug decrim that went into play in early 2021 after being voted in. Overwhelmingly, by the way, 16-point margin, 17-point margin. Early results, they say, of this reform effort, the first of its kind in any U.S. state, are now coming into view. And so far, they are not encouraging. State leaders have acknowledged faults with the policy's implementation and enforcement measures, and Oregon's drug problems have not improved. Last year, the state experienced one of the sharpest rises in overdose deaths in the country and had one of the highest percentages of adults with substance abuse or substance they claim use disorder. During one two-week period last month, three children under the age of four overdosed in Portland after ingesting fentanyl. For decades, drug policy in America centered on using law enforcement to target people who sold, possessed, or used drugs, an approach long supported by both Democratic and Republican politicians. Only in recent years, amid an epidemic of opioid overdoses and national reconsideration of racial inequalities in the criminal justice system, has the drug policy status quo begun to break down as a coalition of health workers, criminal justice reform advocates, and drug user activists have lobbied for a more compassionate and nuanced response. The new approach emphasizes reducing overdose, stopping the spread of infectious diseases, and providing drug users with the resources they need, counseling, housing, and transportation to stabilize their lives and gain control over their drug use. At least, that's the supposed plan. Oregon's Measure 110 was viewed as an opportunity to prove that activists' most groundbreaking idea, sharply reducing the role of law enforcement in the government's response to drugs, could work. The measure also earmarked hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis tax revenue for building a statewide treatment network that advocates promised would do what police and prosecutors couldn't help drug users stop or reduce their drug use and become healthy, engaged members of their communities. The so day- those uh, community out, I got a couple of commentaries here. Sure. So, first off, what the article is basically saying, uh, so I make sure I comprehended it correctly, is that the drug problem has increased. That's the claim. Right. So there's some statistics coming up. And I believe that's because of, you know, the direct welfare payment payments that these guys are getting mm-hmm. uh, these these drug addicts. Uh, so when you have someone who is like working for their drugs, like these, you know, roofers, contractors, guys like that, uh, that, you know, are doing that kind of stuff uh, there, 
you know, essentially, best I can tell, like maintaining. They're not, you know, just, <clears throat> you know, hammering themselves. They're not being taken care of. They they're going to get, get fired if and, they uh, hammer themselves. Well, that too. Yeah. And, and so, but like, how many of these guys that are doing the drugs and the drug encampments are on welfare? Is, is like really you said, the bottom probably line. a lot of them are. And what makes this look really bad is like, you know, the same thing with with the, the gun violence stuff. So, like, the Democrats like to say, oh, the United States is, like, number three in the world for gun violence. Well, if you take the top five violent cities, Chicago, you know, L.A., yeah, Baltimore, out. you know, yeah. all these cities that have... The murder rates, yeah. The yeah. murder rates are insane due to the gun crime. Plus, also, if someone commits suicide with a gun, you know, they call that a that. homicide also, which that should be axed. But basically, you're saying you factor those out from the statistics. Right. Then uh, what do you get? You so the United States is like number one hundred and eighty nine out mm-hmm. of like one ninety three nations. Right. Well, in the and world. these are areas in which guns are prohibited, basically. Right. Yeah. So all these areas where the gun violence is the most, you know, mm-hmm. Chicago, Baltimore, L.A., things like that, uh, or places like that, you you can't have a gun. New York City, you can't have a gun. Even in like a New York police officer can't even carry. Well, you can't legally have a gun. Right. But there's plenty of murders going on in Chicago, and I bet yep. you a bunch of them involve firearms. Well, the, the fire. So you take the firearm statistics from these prohibition places, the top mm-hmm. five prohibition right. places on, on in the United States of America, and now the United States of America becomes like you know the safest, the least amount, you know, almost you know, three from the end um, of 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 gun violence. And so the problem with uh, you know you have the conservatives, the way they're looking at this, the way that they see this is oh. You, we're going to turn in, you know, to Oregon. The whole country is going to turn. My town's going to turn into Oregon if these, uh, you know, if if drugs get decriminalized or become legal. And the thing is, is do like Portugal, uh, you know, has had fantastic, you know, results with this. But I, I just for some reason, I, I'm. Is it easier to get on welfare in Oregon or I Portugal? Don't know. I That's mean, it's really you would think Europe's got plenty of welfare going on over there, but they do bring up Portugal here uh, in a moment. But the, you know, it's it's interesting you bring up gun prohibition because this is one of those issues where conservatives have a huge blind spot, and they have for you know generations. They can see a conservative can understand how gun prohibition doesn't work. Right? right, like they can see that pretty clearly. You look at the cities where guns are prohibited. There's more violence. There's more murder. There's more, you know, danger from criminals that don't care about the law and don't care that guns are prohibited. And they're going to go ahead and carry them and rob people or whatever. And you can't defend yourself legally in those places. They get that. It's pretty clear. But they don't understand that drug prohibition is the same thing. Right, like prohibition always has the same negative effects it's just slightly different depending on what's being prohibited so if you prohibit drugs if you prohibit guns you get criminals using uh guns to you do more crime if you prohibit drugs people do the drugs anyway and then they commit crimes to get the drugs in a lot of cases whereas if the drugs were regularly priced and available at a walgreens or something like that like you can go and buy a bottle of aspirin for a dollar or whatever Then you don't have people knocking over convenience stores and putting knives in people's backs in order I, to, to rob them. For I think we're going to see a situation in this country where the U.S. dollar, you know, gets to the point to where essentially that EBT card uh, welfare just doesn't work anymore. Hmm. And, you know, the do- especially after the CBDC or FedNow, whatever stuff gets, mm-hmm. you know, that started. I think yesterday, yeah, FedNow and FedNow and, and and gets rolling, and then that's you know tremendously hyperinflates. 
uh, to the point to where the welfare system doesn't work. We're already seeing where food subsidies, the food subsidy programs aren't really working that well. Mm. The crop subsidy programs aren't working that well because. Well, do you think that's because the prices are going up faster than the welfare is cranking up the the numbers? I mean, because in theory, they could just print more money and chase around the and create hyperinflation. And I mean, well, when I say food subsidies, welfare, it's like you know, I'm talking like farm subsidies. Uh, and corporate welfare. corporate agricultural okay. subsidies because what's ha- what's happening with you know the farm world is a subsidy you know doesn't mean people are going to actually show up and work in mm-hmm. that particular industry and also the subsidy like right now we have no in a lot of cases they're paying them to not grow things uh that too as i understand it and a lot of what's going on right now in the country is we got massive crop failures all through the midwest colorado nebraska hailstorms, rain a bunch of corn and wheat has just been destroyed it's useless all over the place so we're going to see some see some of that effect but so those are the kind of things that you no matter how hard you subsidize it if you can't get the people to show up to do the work and the weather doesn't cooperate and you know whatever mm-hmm. um just the food production you know is, is, is really ha- having a big issue well it also i think uh on the other end of that the food's going to get so expensive that these subsidies for food for example your, your ebt card is mm-hmm. basically for food uh, are going to get to the point to where they don't really work anymore. And then shortly after that, whatever else it is that, you know, these guys are, you know, so so when you get hyperinflation, all the drug dealers are going to want more money for their drugs to meet inflation. And I think it's going to get to the point to where the welfare recipients aren't really going to be able to get their fix, get their high, or it just collapses and it doesn't work. There is well, no more welfare. Well, some of them are going to turn to crime if that's the case. Uh, and so in places where, like, you can't have a gun, like Oregon, mm-hmm. when all these druggies or california no longer can get their government paycheck and get their money you're going to have some issues because these people are going to be desperate yeah that's a good point oregon does have a lot of gun restrictions that are statewide so it's not just portland that's the problem with guns it's oregon as a whole is not friendly and so like for example in maine new hampshire and vermont where you know, there's lots and lots of guns, and almost everybody carries guns. And mm-hmm. They're all, I think, the drug all, addicts are a little more cautious. Well, you, you don't have like the muggings and stuff and mm-hmm. the violence, and because it won't go well for them. Well, what's going to happen is, is these guys start getting brazen, yeah. and to the point to where they are going to mug somebody in New Hampshire, for example, is probably not going to go over. Yeah, too they'll well. end up dead. Right, they'll end up dead, and that'll be the end of that, and it, you know, all sort of fix itself. Yeah, in New Hampshire. Where like Oregon, California, you know, uh, yeah, New I York. I think that's a good. Di- that's it might a good be point. a bloodbath. <laughs> but so unfortunately, what we're saddled with here is this experiment is being run in this place, as you've pointed out, in Oregon, where people are not free to defend themselves against any kind of attacks from these junkies, and that's going to definitely skew things in a in a more negative direction. In fact, in New York State, uh, New York City, for example, according to Luke Rodowski, and I believe him, if you uh, if somebody mugs you and you uh, and you fight back and you hurt them, oh, you're getting arrested, or or you like yeah. killed them or something, yep. yeah, you are definitely being charged. So the day after the measure passed, Cassandra Frederick, the executive director of Drug Policy Alliance, it does a lot of good work. Uh, they're one of the nation's most prominent drug policy reform organizations. She issued a statement calling the vote a historic paradigm-shifting win and predicted that Oregon would become, quote, a model and a starting point for states across the country to decriminalize drug use. But three years later, with rising overdoses and delays in treatment funding, even some of the measure's supporters now believe the policy needs to be changed. In a nonpartisan statewide poll earlier this year, more than 60% of respondents blamed Measure 110 for making drug addiction, homelessness, and crime worse. A majority, including a majority of Democrats, said they support bringing back criminal penalties 
for drug possession. And I blame welfare. Yeah, well, they're not blaming welfare, unfortunately. They're saying, well, we screwed this up. Uh, we Let's just bring the cops back in and just start arresting our way out of this problem again. I mean, it's just a total failure of looking at this in any sort of a compassionate or creative way, believing that the violence of the war on drugs is going to solve the problem that it didn't solve for 50 years uh, prior to this. And 100 years ago, you could get any drug you wanted, but there was no welfare 100 years ago. This is true. And there were still addicts, but they weren't robbing people to support their habits because it was like 10 cents for a huge bottle of heroin. Uh, There's more coming up. The Shire Free Church offers a sanctuary to those seeking an escape from state churches. The Shire Free Church is an interfaith, diverse group of people that may not share identical theological beliefs. As a member in or minister of the Shire Free Church, you are a sovereign individual and may be the faith of your choice. We don't claim to have all of the answers. We are open to all peaceful people. We want to learn from each other. What unifies the Shire Free Church and its diverse members is peace, love, and liberty. There are many paths to God, one for every individual. The Shire Free Church does not define a specific path beyond these parameters that must be your foundation. Peace as your way. Love as your guide. And liberty as your light. Learn more at church.shiresociety.com. That's church. ShireSociety.com Free Talk Live It's Free Talk Live We're kicking off the second hour here of the program As always, you can join the show The number is 603-283-6160 That's 603-283-6160 We're talking about drug decriminalization and the experiment that they've been involved with there in Oregon and what has gone right, if anything, and what has gone wrong, at least according to The Atlantic, which did a very detailed piece recently looking back at the last three years roughly of, uh, I guess not quite, maybe two and a half years of drug decriminalization in Oregon as passed by a good amount of the voters in 2020 it's ian and jay in the studio here tonight by the way free talk live is brought to you by dash dash is digital cash it is a cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending which makes it pretty unusual in the world of cryptocurrencies there's a lot of cryptos out there that are designed for like all these cool tech purposes and programming and you know all these wizardry tech wizardry things like they're really complicated and you got to really do your research to learn the world of crypto but when bitcoin was created by satoshi nakamoto whoever that person or persons is or are Uh, When Bitcoin came out, it was in the white paper subtitled Peer-to-Peer Electronic Cash. Satoshi's vision was very clear. The idea of being able to send value from one person to another anywhere in the world without having any intermediaries or third parties being able to stand in the way of that happening. Unfortunately, with Bitcoin, it's kind of useless for that purpose. They essentially allowed Bitcoin to grow too large for its britches so to speak and uh, the network is packed full of transactions which has driven the cost of transactions up and they've done nothing to fix it so as a result bitcoin transactions the last i checked which was a couple weeks ago 
uh, were like a dollar a piece on average or on uh, median transactions. Yeah, I did one the other day and uh, it was like three dollars. Yeah, that's not useful. No. Uh, you know, if you're transferring three thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, okay, no biggie. But if you're transferring three dollars worth and it costs three dollars on top to do that, that's just not useful. You can't buy a cup of coffee. Uh, it's not useful in the in the actual marketplace of buying and selling things. But Dash, however, is. Dash has managed to keep their fees down, in many cases, uh, well below one cent per transaction. And Dash is very, very effective at uh, being useful for merchant purposes. In fact, uh, because of its protection by what they call their chain locks technology, Dash is as I understand it, it is impervious to the dreaded 51% attack, which is something that a lot of the competitors to Bitcoin are really worried about because it doesn't take a whole lot of money for the attack, you know, the attackers out there if they want to take down one of these other competing blockchains. There's just not a lot of strength behind them, so they can't really uh, put up with those attacks. Dash can protect themselves, and so they got that ability. You can do more research to learn about the technicals behind chain locks. It's pretty interesting stuff. So Dash is really useful. It is uh, essentially, you can consider it to be a done deal when you get that Dash transaction in because they are irreversible transactions. Go and learn more at Dash.org. That's where you can learn more about Dash. It's one of the oldest cryptocurrencies. It's widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get. It's easy to use Dash. And you can start over at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO, by the way, for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. You can visit Dash.org and start learning about Dash at Dash.org. We continue here talking about the failure of the war on drugs, but has the attempt to decriminalize drugs also failed in Oregon? We're going to get into some of the the numbers and some of the stories uh, coming up here from a very detailed piece by The Atlantic. But first, we go to Skeeter on the line with Ian and Jay. Go ahead, Skeeter, calling from California. Hey, I originally called in uh, originally to uh, discuss secession, but since you guys are talking about drugs again in the drug war, I guess it's more relevant to talk about that. And I don't think we'll have time to get to secession. But uh, okay, so let me start with the drug war again. Uh, so on some points that uh, was it Jay? Is that yeah. his name? Yeah, and some I disagree with a lot of what he says. Well, just on certain topics. We'll uh, pick one of them. Certain- <laughs> Yeah, so I disagree with the causal relationship Jay's proposing. Right? I don't think uh, welfare causes drug use, but it's more likely that drug use causes a dependence on welfare. Uh, number two, that's well, I don't think not- that Jay said that welfare causes drug use. I mean, maybe it certainly incentivizes it. Yeah, I think that what you likely will see is people who are on welfare are more likely to use more drugs. I think that's definitely true. I mean, people who are also... What I'm, so what I'm saying is all the people that the EMTs are mm-hmm. giving Narcan to and the people who are overdosing and their bodies they're picking up, uh, you know, off the sidewalks in Springfield, Massachusetts, for example, and in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was just recently one in Hillsborough. Um, and the one in Hillsborough was definitely, uh, Hillsborough, New Hampshire, was definitely a woman that was on welfare. Um, that uh, overdosed and they narcammed her and they couldn't, you know, um, bring her back. Mm. But so my statement is, is the people that are overdosing, according to the EMTs that, that are showing up on the scene who have to do an intake form, they got to write these people's name and, you know, they got to do paperwork, sure. uh, are on welfare. And uh, one of the other guys said to me, <clears throat> he's like, basically, 
the the resources of the emergency response system in Springfield, Massachusetts, is quite literally like ninety percent of it is overdose, wow. is drug stuff, and and that wasn't that fifteen years ago. Fifteen years ago, it was maybe like twenty percent, it, it, and it's just exploded. Go ahead. Yeah, it's just uh, you've made an implication. You even uh, said it again that it incentivizes drug use uh, just now. That's and the I, observation I, I, I made. Well, I think that the the point is on that. At least my understanding of it is: idle hands do the devil's work, as they say, right? So people that are not doing anything, people that have no reason to live, essentially, they have nothing that's driving them. They're just sitting around all day, getting paid to do nothing. Those people, I would agree with Jay, are more likely to take up a drug habit if they never had one before. But I do think that typically what you're seeing with welfare is people who are likely already on drugs doing more drugs as a result of having more free time, considering they're not having to work. Yeah, drug addicts who go from not being on welfare to being on welfare really do a lot more drugs. And it's pretty much, they, it gets to the point to where that's all they have, that that's all they end up doing is drugs because they don't have to do anything else. How many drug addicts uh, do you know in your life? The people that died maybe of like uh, a fentanyl overdose when they're trying to take cocaine. Yeah, I, I know a few. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Were, they were, they pro- were they productive people or were they uh, welfare people? Yeah, they're they're only doing it recreationally, you know, at a club. You know, they're taking cocaine, and mm-hmm. they saw, you know, they don't know like since government makes it tough to smuggle it in, they have uh, drug people have to uh, drug the smugglers have to make it the strength stronger, so they put in fentanyl. They mix in fentanyl. So, would you so, agree, yeah. at the very least, with us, uh, Skeeter, that the war on drugs needs to end? No, no. So I'm getting so I'm getting to that. Okay, so let me get there. So uh, it's another point of contention. I don't really have a point of contention if that's what you're saying about the causal relationship with even welfare, that it induces more drug use. Explain to me why it is. I don't want you to just like get there. I want to explain to me why you think that the war on drugs, the idea of using the police and the violence uh, that they bring to people's lives is something that should continue. Uh, Okay, I'll just jump to that part. Okay, so again... I'm an accelerationist. Well, I'm not a principal. It's not a principle, so I use it as a tool to get to where I want, right, which is the end of the state. Uh, but I don't want to kill off everybody to do so, right? I wouldn't press a nuke button to nuke the entire world. That that accelerates government, but it defeats my purpose of uh, serving evolution's purpose, right? So... Well, that's what uh, you think evolution is. It's it's Skeeter's directed evolution, where where you think evolution should should put the human race is what you're willing to put, you know, the violence of the state behind. So you're totally fine with sacrificing untold millions of Americans and other people around the world into government prisons, into you know, lifelong drug addiction because you want to continue the war on drugs because you think it will actually increase the size of the state to the point where the state will fall and then go away this is uh yeah and then the benefits come after that too with the lives i save right again you keep doing a incomplete cost benefit analysis i can i can demonstrate i mean you're just a psychopath you're just absolutely crazy somebody who doesn't mind victimizing other people who will actually sit out sit there and act as though you're helping by throwing people in a prison cell because you think that's going to somehow accelerate the demise of the state. 
let's go through. Uh, I have no choice but to go through a, um, a hypothetical quantitative example. I have a choice. So, Good night. The number here is 603-283-6160. That's 603-283-6160. Let's talk to somebody that might know a thing or two about the war on drugs. David Hathaway, uh, the sheriff down in Santa Cruz County in Arizona, who's a former DEA agent turned good guy, turned libertarian, uh, and he's here on the line with us. Go ahead, David. Yeah, good evening, uh, Ian and Jay. Uh, great talking to you guys. I wasn't going to talk about drug stuff, but based on Skeeter's thing, I'd give a little anecdote. I was the uh, office head of a DEA office in Illinois for five years and the office head of a DEA office in Missouri for five years. And we noticed that, um, and the drug dealers noticed, that when the welfare checks came in on the first day of the month, that's when the big shipments would come in because, you know, the uh, the uh, the, the drug dealers knowing the market yep. know that that's when the demand is because that's what the welfare money was spent on predominantly. But <clears throat> I, what I was calling about was something else. Um, Nikki was talking last night about a ghost town. Um, I can't remember if it was Connecticut or something, and it was kind of like mm -hmm. a clickbaity headline saying that um, – it was, you know, illegal to go there because it was so scary and spirit-filled and all that. Yeah, I think and it was called it turned, Dudley Town or Dudleyville, yeah. Connecticut. Yeah. And then it turned out the truth of the matter was later in the article that there was a conservation easement preventing people from going there. And just to give a little anecdote about that, I own a ghost town in Arizona, and it's the only piece of private land in a in a mountainous area. That's uh, everything else is uh, Forest Service land. Mm -hmm. um, uh, government-owned land around it. This piece of land is 62 acres. It's called Sunnyside, Arizona. So if you Google Sunnyside Ghost Town, you'll see a lot of pictures and articles about it. But um, back to this conservation easement thing, I've been approached multiple times by people who have said, look, um, you need to lock your land into a conservation easement, which means you make a deal with the government where you're property taxes stay low, but you have to agree to never do any commercial ventures on the land, whether it be livestock or farming or a farmer's market mm. or to have something like, you know, uh, a freedom fest there or something like that, where you have to agree to never use it for productive commercial purposes. And mm -hmm. of course, I've refused to do that over and over. But when Nikki was reading that article uh, yesterday, I think it was last night, um, you know, online, yeah. it, it, it reminded me of the circumstance that I'm in with, with this ghost town that I own where I've turned them down. But multiple times I've been told, look, you need to do this to preserve the environment in that area where there's tens of thousands of acres of federal land and yours is the, is the only piece of private land surrounded by federal land and to fit with the government's, um, you know, vision for that area. They don't want anything commercial. And it was a mining town. My great grandparents were, were miners. They had a gold mine and silver mine there. And they also had a lumber mill because that, that area of the mountains in Arizona actually has timber. So they would provide the shoring and stuff for the other mines. I have area. to ask, David, why would you want to buy a ghost town? Like, what? What is the uh, the interest? Is it that you're hoping there's still some gold in them there hills? Or you know? <laughs> no, it's I, I inherited it. My oh. great grandparents moved from Dodge City, Kansas, in the 1800s mm -hmm. to Arizona. Not that many people in Arizona are from Arizona. It's kind of a mm -hmm. transient population. People come here to work for Raytheon in Tucson, which is the biggest employer in. 
Tucson. They come to the universities. They come to the aerospace industry and government agencies like the big Border Patrol offices. So there's there's very few people that that they go way back. Like actually, mm -hmm. Arizona became a state in 1912. So my family was mm -hmm. here before this was a state where there was no line on the border, where people had ranch property on both sides of the border. So my ancestors came as uh, gold miners, gold and silver miners, hmm. uh, hard rock mining in those mountains. And that's actually what that is. If if you see pictures of that on internet, it was a, a gold mining town. And then it fortunately stayed in the family. Uh, my grandfather inherited it from great grandparents and then my dad and mm -hmm. then me. So um, along with the ranch land, that's just a piece of land I happen to own. Like the buildings have mostly fallen down. There was mm. a schoolhouse there and a post office when I was a kid and multiple other houses. Uh, but nowadays there's only a few, a few of the buildings left. left. But you is know, it, it, is it something you want to sell later on or like why are you holding oh. on to it? No, it's just kind of too sentimental. Like ah, we have family reunions there. There's extended, extended family that it means a lot to them because okay. they trace their roots back, back to there. And, um, you know, and and I also intend to use it for commercial purposes. I don't have cattle there, or livestock there now. But mm -hmm. you know, I you know uh, you could. it's sentimental, and I yeah. want to hang on to All it. Right, yeah. Fair enough. So, uh, um, <clears throat> Sheriff, uh, it sounds like the people approaching you might be this like United Nations Agenda Twenty One, Agenda Twenty Thirty crowd. Uh, one of my friends, Dave Copaz, twenty years ago, he was going to every rotting gun club in western massachusetts and connecticut and new hampshire he could presenting about how uh the agenda 21 initiative to sort of you know essentially make um the united states pretty much off limits except for a handful of mega cities and you know that was the idea was to return you know all the wildlife the wilderness land no humans could go there no farming no agriculture no nobody could live there is sort of the deal and so what happens is any kind of tracts of land that they can sort of get their teeth into through, I like to refer to these things as jurisdictional traps, uh, like what they're trying to say, you know, you got to put it in some kind of conservation easement or whatever. Yep. Um, so is this like a Agenda 21 type? You know, yeah, thing. and and it's kind of really insidious the the way the process happens. Like there's there's a lot of big ranches in Arizona because Arizona is marginal land for you know pasture land. It's not as lush as what you have back there in New Hampshire. So you have to have a big tract of land to make it prof profitable. So you're talking thousands of acres. Now, what happens? If it, these are kind of family-owned operations, and when it comes time for the next generation to inherit it, there is a 60%, you know, what you could call death tax. Um, typically, a single person can pass on $600,000 worth of value without an inheritance tax. A married couple, $1.2 million. So what's happened on some of these big, major, mega historic ranches, these families aren't rich. They just happen to have a, land, a lot of land, you know, what you call land poor. Mm -hmm. And so what, what happens is the last person, you know, the, the the last spouse that dies that owns that ranch, the the children can't find a way to hang on to the ranch. And let me give you a big an example. There's these Spanish land grants grants here that were, were still honored when Arizona became a state. These big Spanish land grants, there was one called the San Rafael de la Zanja land grant. And it was a, a big ranch that had come through different generations into a, a, a current era family. And then what happened, they couldn't afford 
to pay the inheritance tax. So along comes the Nature Conservancy, which is a quasi-governmental, because the government just can't come in and buy it, Mm -hmm. uh, because it was originally homesteaded or attained legally. So there's these quasi-governmental agencies, these NGOs, that use the cover of being kind of private, but they're not really. Um, Like the Nature Conservancy came in and they made a deal where, look, you sell this whole thing to us. And then the uh, government agreed to defer uh, the inheritance tax. Ah. And the family completely lost the ranch, but kept uh, a little portion that they could live on. And then it became Nature Conservancy, which means nobody can use it. It's Mm -hmm. the most lush pasture land in this part of the state, but it can't be used. But because in so order shut to dodge the tax they, implications, wow. yeah, they had to put it in one of these conservation shelters. That's just like you said, uh, Jay, you know, it's like, yeah, Agenda 21. So this is effectively of- gobbling up family owned farmland and putting it in corporate hands that are supposedly doing nothing with it, at least for the moment. But at least cutting out these family farms means less competition for the Monsantos of the world. Is that right? Yeah, because there's no way the next generation can inherit it. They can't Mm -hmm. afford to inherit it. They can't just shell over, you know, when the person dies, they can't uh, hand over 60% of the value. And just to be clear, is this an Arizona tax thing, this death tax you're talking about? No, U.S. Oh, it's federal. That's federal. Oh, wow. So so this particular inheritance tax only applies to federal U.S. citizens. Only federal U.S. citizens, 14th Amendment citizens, are subject to the income tax. The IRS is very clear about this. Mm. The United States is defined as District of Columbia, territories, and possessions. So by doing, by correcting your status, which, you know, you can go on the internet and internet search, you know, correcting my status as a U.S. versus state citizen. There's a whole bunch of guys offering this service all over the place. And, uh, you know, which is something I, I, I did a long time ago and a lot of my friends have, but basically the, um, you know, a, fe- a federal United States citizen is a second class citizen to where a state citizen is a first class citizen and a state citizen is not subject to the, uh, to the IRS stuff. So yeah. when, so I, I sold some land, for example, that I had years ago and, you know, it was land I paid, uh, like 12 hundred dollars for you know I was 18 years old and I sold it basically for like twenty thousand dollars you know I never lived there or anything actually twenty eight thousand dollars I guess is what I sold it for and um and you know so there was like you know I just checked it did the documentation for example that I'm not a you know federal United States citizen and there was no like you know capital gains or any of that stuff mm-hmm. on it and uh so you know, this is another thing where people just you know need to correct their citizenship because if you are a U.S. citizen and you check off a box on some government application that you're a United States citizen, the government says, "Oh, you're a Fourteenth Amendment United States citizen that has not rights but privileges and immunities." And- yeah, if I give you another example, it's not related to land, but since I live right here on the border, cars that are registered in Mexico, so they're not U.S. citizens, but they have a visa. They mm-hmm. can have all these interesting cars that were made in Russia and Czechoslovakia. They've never met the crash test DOD mm. uh, regulations, but they're very efficient vehicles like the, these 1,000cc minivans that are made by major manufacturers like Toyota and Nissan, but they can't be, they don't met, uh, fit all the uh, DOT guidelines. But if they have a Mexico plate, they can drive across and they mm. can circulate in the U.S. Um, 
it's kind of an example of that, Jane, uh, Jay, like a non-U.S. citizen meeting the laws of a foreign country, but they have a visa to cross. And so then their car crosses with them. And, you know, there's these reciprocal agreements on, on the license plates. If you if you have time, uh, Ian, I also have a story about a mountain lion. But uh, I actually am curious if you want to weigh in on Oregon's drug decrim. Have you been following what's been going on up there at all? No, I haven't. All right. I would love to hear from you on another night then, maybe as we get closer through this story to get your opinions as somebody who was formerly a drug warrior and see if you can identify how they've screwed it up. Because that's what they're claiming here is that this drug decrim experiment in Oregon is not going well. Thanks for the call tonight, David. I appreciate the, uh, the call. There's more coming up. Join us on the number here is 603-283-6160. We're talking about the war on drugs, the failed war on drugs that has destroyed so many lives, in addition to the people who are already destroying their own lives with drug addiction, for instance. And, of course, destroying people who weren't drug addicts' lives by catching people just randomly, you know, pullovers, uh, p- police pullovers, catching people that happen to have drugs. But they weren't drug addicts. They were just drug users. Never mind the amount of people who the cops plant drugs on them. I mean, That happens, too. That yeah, happens, Using too. drugs to destroy people's lives who might not even have been using them. Uh, so, I mean, there's so many stories. We've covered many of them over the years. And one story that we touched on in 2020 was the... Uh, the amazing, uh, I guess you call it a uh, resolution or whatever, a, a voter, what do, you, what do they call it? I'm spacing on the, the term where uh, voters put something on the ballot, basically. And it's uh, it's something that happens more in other states. We don't get that here in New Hampshire. Ballot initiative. Typically. Yeah, initiative. Thank you for that. Uh, the ballot initiative that uh, was measure 110 passed with a 17% margin. So people wanted this. And now they're saying that it's to say decrim, which is a decrim of all drugs, uh, small amounts. So you still can't legally sell the drugs. You can't legally possess large amounts of the drugs, but you can kind of legally decriminalized possess small amounts of them. And this was going to be a big experiment. It is a big experiment. The question is, how's it going? And according to The Atlantic, in a very detailed piece, they say, not so hot. And that's what I wanted to get deeper into here. What we found out was that now 60% in a state poll have blamed Measure 110 for making drug addiction, homelessness, and crime worse, they say. This year's legislative session, which ended in late June, saw at least a dozen Measure 110-related proposals from both Democrats and Republicans, ranging from from technical fixes... Uh, to full restoration of criminal penalties for drug possession, two significant changes, tighter restrictions on fentanyl, and more state oversight of how Measure 110 funding is distributed, passed with bipartisan support. I think we're going to see some hard pendulum swing to the right that's going to get real authoritarian, and what's going to cause that pendulum swing to the right uh, is the, this example, for, exa- you know, for example, the, well, look what happens when we legal, legalize drugs. We get all these drug encampments. We get all these overdoses yeah, and all Yeah, but the this thing stuff. is the drug encampments are happening outside of, of Oregon, right? Oh, like yeah, they're drugging- happening everywhere. And, and the thing is— So that didn't lead to <clears throat> drug encampments. And, and, and the thing is, though, but they're not really enforcing—in in all the blue cities, they're just not really enforcing any of these 
uh, even if it is against the law to have these drugs, they're not enforcing it. It's just like and, and they've they're not enforcing regular even crimes. You're not enforcing shoplifting crimes mm-hmm. or they're oh if you steal less than nine hundred bucks, we're not going to you know prosecute you. Well, kind plus of stuff. it's it's either legal or they're not enforcing the encampments, right? right. I mean, right. people yeah. can just set up tents out on Main Street or whatever. Yeah, and so th- this is going to be pushed as the example of why we need to have you know, hard right enforcement on, you know, a, a pendulum swing to the right, I believe, is what's coming around next. And that's Very not going to solve any of these problems. It, well, It'll push it out of the, out of public view. Yeah, I mean, you but know, that's it. Well, not even out of public view. It'll, it'll be like the military on the streets, you know, mm-hmm. rounding up people and doing whatever with well, them. Well, the homeless people are going to be somewhere, right? Like if they start rounding up homeless people and put them into the jail, they're going to fill the jail real quick. So eventually they're going to have to let them out. And the prison and- industrial complex really loves that. Well, yeah, I mean, it would give them excuses to to build more prisons, but eventually you might actually get the conservatives mad because they don't want to pay seventy thousand dollars a year or whatever it costs in in your state. It might be as low as forty, but there's different ranges to keep somebody in a prison cell to give them three hot meals a day and a cot to sleep on. You know, you're basically you've given the homeless a home, and now you're having to pay for it in that particular case. Unless that particular conservative is you know getting a kickback from that corporation if they work for the prison industrial complex, yeah, or or just the, the company that provides the food to the prison but that's the irony of this right like on one hand the conservatives can see the problem of the liberals handing out all these benefits and creating these homeless camps or whatever and, and incentivizing this on the other hand if you put the authoritarianism into place like you're predicting then that's just doing the same thing but putting a different uh, shine on it essentially the conservatives are saying quote we're doing something but you're just housing the homeless and you're feeding the homeless just like the liberals were you're just doing it in your conservative camps well the thing is if you if you push this thing so hard that where it just all these cities where the welfare epidemic is is fueling the drug a- a- epidemic uh, like Kensington Philadelphia Venice Beach California you know just just pick one and then you, the, then the people in control don't care if it's author, if it's left authoritarian mm-hmm. control or right authoritarian control, as long as there's a reason to have an authoritarian control, and as long as they can keep on bounce swinging this pendulum left and right to where now n- now it's going to be the right's turn for a while yep. because all the people are sick of all the drug addicts and the drug encampments and you can't walk down in the streets and you know. Well, even like here in Manchester, New Hampshire, we got some like pretty rough areas. But one thing I could tell you about Manchester is like in a in a couple in a in a couple city block area where a whole bunch of free staters bought houses. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I mentioned this on the you show did, before. Yeah. Um, they they're pretty much cleaned up. You don't see cleaned the drug the addicts place. around there or the street walkers because just there's a bunch of free staters walking around, open carrying. They don't want that stuff yeah. around. They pick it definitely up, helps you know? to bring better people yeah. in. That's for sure. But it doesn't solve none of these things. Solve the problem, right? The welfare quote-unquote solution makes things worse we've already pointed that out throwing people in a prison cell doesn't work either you pointed out earlier that the guards will just smuggle things in or the prisoners themselves will smuggle it in where the sun don't shine or whatever and you know you can't keep the drugs out of the prisons either then you just have everybody paying the ridiculously inflated prices to keep people in in prison and and the reason why none of these things are going to solve the problem because a lot of the drug addicts as soon as they get out they're just going right back to uh, you know the crack house so you cannot clean up this problem with the violence of the state, whether it be through welfare or through prisons. You can't clean it up with trying to uh, go with solving the issue without hitting it at its source. And the the source of this issue, welfare exacerbates it. 
But I think the source of this issue generally when you talk to people who are drug addicts is these are people who fundamentally are not happy with their lives for whatever reason. You know, maybe they were abused by their parents. Maybe they, you know, hate their job. Maybe they don't like their their husband or their wife. Whatever. I don't know what it is. Yeah, the fact but, that they have to work a hundred hours a week to pay all the taxes to maintain a, you know, a, a life, or they could just get high and you know live in a tent on a sidewalk. Sure. And so, because people are unhappy, they seek out something to escape whether it's alcoholism or whether it's hard drugs or whatever that is video games there's something to fill that void in their lives and so until people are satisfied until people can actually have pride in their work and in their family life or whatever we're still going to have these problems they're they're just going to shift in their forms because the leftists and the rightists are only proposing to clean up the edges of the the problem, the symptoms. They're trying to because they trying just to want to empower the themselves. They yeah. don't really care about the problem. No, they, and I think that's a great point. They position themselves as though they care about this, but the reality is they just want power. I think that's that's absolutely true. There's this uh, commentator, podcaster, influencer. Uh, her name is Lauren Southern. I don't know if you ever heard uh-huh, of her. Yeah. So she did kind a, of a righty. Yeah, she's Canadian. Yeah. She's sure, kind of righty. Yeah. Yep. Um, but she did a really good expose on the city of Vancouver, Canada, uh, British Columbia, maybe. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Vancouver on the homelessness issue and the amount of money that this city spends. I can't remember the numbers, but mm-hmm. it was like insane. But it's just like the hospitals. So the reason healthcare is so expensive is because all of the special government related government uh, authorized contractors are able to sell, you know, the food, the sheets, the bedding, the little right. placards, the the band-aids, the hospital beds, all the all the Inflated hospital prices. stuff like yeah. at, at like, you know, 100x market value. Right. So they make tremendous amount of money. This is why simple hospital procedures cost, you know, 10,000, 20,000 dollars in America and you go, you know, down to uh, Mexico and the same procedure is 1500 dollars. Mm-hmm. And it's way better and you're treated way better. Uh so it's the same so uh, Lauren Southern uh, with uh, respect to uh, Vancouver, was uh, explaining how all of this money to like deal with the homelessness issue uh, is basically just going to a whole bunch of government contractors and these like home and these and there's not enough housing for the homeless and you know all the 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 housing that the major amounts of you know uh, local state or local provincial and you know. Uh, federal taxes are paying for uh is is you know these people are living in squalor in these buildings that are just you know like the water doesn't work and things leak and this that and the other thing or the heat don't work or whatever and it's it was a crazy number it was it was you know hundred thousand dollars or something per like housing unit per year to like to maintain this and yeah. and it's just and it's just crazy. because it's all private contractors and it's a you know it's the pork yeah, it's somebody's cashing checks, and yeah. they don't care about what they're actually doing. And this is happening in every every city in America. Same mm-hmm. thing. Sure, you have these contractors that are just getting you know paid hand over fist to um, uh, Howie Carr, who's like a local guy here. I'm listening to him on on. He's the way a right wing uh, talk show host. Yep, he is uh, originally from Boston, yep. uh, and he was talking about how there was a hotel in Taunton, Mass, where a whole bunch of homeless people got put during the covid stuff oh, in 2020 and the hotel is like not recovered it, it, yeah, it's it basically it, it, it's a cesspool and it's like seven thousand dollars per 
individual mm-hmm. is a number he said that they got from like the Massachusetts whatever Department of Revenue something or another Freedom of Information Act request stuff. Uh, it was like $7,000 per month per individual to put them in that hotel. So the people who own the hotel are just getting paid bank. And, and they're just running in into the ground. And yeah, they're not doing nothing to it. You, you can't rent, you know, nobody's going to go rent a room at this right. hotel. And get it's robbed. All, and it's all occupied. Oh, that's by, and it's the same thing in uh, Worcester Master was another one. A guy uh, they were talking about where it's just a whole bunch of like, you know, migrants or they referred to them as illegals i don't like that term but people yeah. just like being put in there and housed by the state doesn't it's again yeah it doesn't lead to good things bad incentives let's go to the phones here we've got i don't know who this is caller you're on free talk live go ahead hey good evening i didn't call to talk about myself but i will just to uh to enrich the discussion previously for a moment here sure uh, i just want to mention not all drug use is escapism i myself uh, as i may have called a couple of months ago and mentioned oh i was talking about drug abuse or- sir just to clarify, uh, uh-huh. we, we were talking earlier about the difference between drug use and drug abuse. There are people well, who no, use drugs for recreational purposes. They're completely well-adjusted uh, people who go to work. They're productive. They take care of their families. A drug abuser, on the other hand, tends to be a, a person who is trying to escape something right in their well, mind. Well, there's a third category, too. It okay. could be self-medication. It's not recreation. But it's necessary, and it's certainly not abuse. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was put on drugs that I shouldn't have been on as a child. So in my opinion, if, if it's a drug war, I'm fighting back. Um, mm-hmm. And I do it just to balance it out. But the drug war failed for the same reason in general that drug decrim failed in Oregon. It's because of how it's done. Like you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. you noted that 100 years ago, uh, you could get cocaine and heroin in the drugstore mm-hmm. next to anything else that was legal or not. I guess it was all legal. But people weren't uh, descending into the same patterns. I find that the battle between freedom and liberty in the state is all about faith versus fear. To me, it looks a lot like the world is just doing better when people have faith in each other and worse when they don't. Mm. And and this is what makes uh, religion so successful, you know, no matter what you believe in. That belief will open new opportunities and new paths that make you a great example to other people, and it takes on, right, uh, either one way or the other. But we're living in a very fear-based society right yep, now. that's true. That's why everything's inflating. That's why people are losing their jobs or livelihoods, and it's all going down. To well, the government is uh, really interested. I mean, the government thugs want you to be afraid. They want people to live in a state of fear so they can be the ones that can have the solution. Just turn to them. Elect the new great man. Uh, and the great man will come along and solve all your problems. I mean, that's the same thing we hear every four years uh, from these federal politicians that just, oh, well, they, the rest of them were all bad, but just elect me and uh, everything will be fine. And it's, yeah, and they always have a system they want to propose with certain planks that they're going to campaign on, and you're supposed to judge them as to whether or not they put those things in place and kept to their promises. But, I mean, they're talking about a system that they're going to use, and it's all their, their vision of how things work based on their personal life experience and how many people agree with them. determines not whether or not they're right, just determines whether or not we're going to go down that path, and it never works because any system is a destination, just like anarchy. It's a destination, not a vehicle. Anarchy is not a vehicle. It's a destination. And by that, I mean if we have faith in each other and realize that every moment is a new moment, has nothing to do with the moment before or after, just treat each day like a new day, and do what you can to make the right things happen, and not judge people, not be afraid of the consequences of their freedom, but have faith. And things generally will trend towards anarchy. One day people will behave responsibly enough to make taxation obsolete, and you won't be talking about drug decrims or drug wars at all. Well, I look forward to that day. I hope we see it in our lifetime. A good advice tonight, man. I appreciate it. What was your name, caller? Adam. Adam, thanks for the call. Thanks for the call, man. I appreciate it. 
Uh, let's continue here. Riley is on the line here, the uh, the gentleman who does the editing of the Free Talk Live Digest online. Uh, Riley, you're a fresh mover here to New Hampshire. Congratulations on making the move. Thank you, sir. I'm very happy to be in New Hampshire. It's nice to be in the free state, plus a little closer to my girlfriend in Pennsylvania. Nice. Yeah, that's always nice. Move from Utah. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. The topic I want to talk about, speaking about drugs and drug decrim, I am planning a 420 rally tomorrow at Central Square in Keene, New Hampshire. If you're in the New England area or if you really want to come here, I would recommend coming because... I'm hoping that I'm not the only one there. So if you're around, <laughs> come by. Yeah. Um, I mean, so it sounds like you're reviving something that hasn't happened in a re- on a regular basis here in New Hampshire for some time, which is the, I guess, technically still civil disobedient act of consuming cannabis in public. Now, this used to be a misdemeanor charge if they caught you with any amount of cannabis in public, but in 2017... There was New Hampshire's first ever cannabis decriminalization that passed, and uh, and so that resulted in it becoming no longer a misdemeanor, but a hundred dollar fine for the first offense. I believe you can go through three offenses, and then it goes up to a misdemeanor at that point. But as a hundred dollar fine, um, it has basically resulted in almost no one, at least in the Keene area, receiving tickets for cannabis the cops just don't enforce it yeah i was gonna say uh, have you ever heard of anyone getting a ticket (laughs) since then neither have i i've not um so is that what you're uh are you hoping to get a ticket for this riley or are you just wanting to exercise uh your right to put whatever you want in your own body well i do not want to get a ticket for this and i do not think the government should give me a ticket for this i believe that cannabis is a sacrament and i want to exercise my religious right to practice ah. my spiritual belief in public now this like is every an, other christian yeah now this is an interesting angle on this and i happen to know that you're serious about this particular religious belief um and it references in a, a case that i think was 2020 actually in the supreme court here in new hampshire there was a guy who was arrested for i believe mushrooms uh, psychedelic mushrooms and he was found guilty at the Superior Court level. He appealed that to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And the New Hampshire Supreme Court unanimously ruled in this man's favor, overturning his conviction, because his argument was he was using his mushrooms for spiritual purposes. And the New Hampshire Constitution is very clear that you have the ability to not just believe what you want as far as a religion is concerned— but you have the freedom in New Hampshire to express or to worship in the way that you want. So the New Hampshire Constitution is actually better on religious freedom than the United States Constitution because it protects your right to worship how you want. And so that means that if using psychedelic mushrooms or in this particular case using cannabis is part of how you worship God, then that is going to likely be a success 
if you have to go through the uh, the court procedure. Because obviously telling that to a cop isn't going to stop them from arresting you necessarily. Right. Or in the case They're of cannabis. Right. Or in the cannabis case, ticketing you. You likely will not be arrested. Uh, the only reason you'll get arrested for a violation, quote unquote, in Keene is if you refuse to identify yourself. Then they do arrest you until they can figure out who you are. And then they cut you loose because they, they, their argument is they have to have a name to write on the ticket, uh, essentially. So if you right. identify yourself during the uh, ticketing process, then you usually just walk away with a court date uh, in that case. But as we've, yeah. as we've learned, I don't know anybody who's been ticketed for cannabis. I actually asked the Keene police a couple years ago to give me their statistics for the two years prior to decriminalization and the two years after decriminalization as far as cannabis arrests and cannabis ticketing was concerned. And it went from like 76 a year, if I recall correctly, to two. So basically, they're just not in, they're not enforcing this at all. I suspect the two were probably people that they just happened to arrest for something else and had marijuana on yeah. them or something like that. It sounds like with the Supreme Court, you know, unanimously ruling that, you know, it was the mushrooms were, you know, the religious sacrament uh, has definitely put a chilling effect, you know, on, you know, law enforcement to because, you know, this is what every Rastafarian has been saying for long as I can remember, you know, about cannabis, that it's a religious sacrament. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, great that the Supreme Court upheld that. I, I wasn't aware of that. It's a huge case, uh, and it, it really sets New Hampshire apart, I think, from a lot of the other places in the country where this is a not, a, not at all a settled uh, piece of law. Now, to be fair, I have pointed this out at the hearings that they've had over the last two years for decriminalization of mushrooms. There's been bills that have been put forward. Uh, also, there's been a DMT decrim uh, bill or a legalization bill here in recent uh, the last year and i explained this to the state representatives on the criminal justice panel i explained the court case gave them the name of the case like here you go this is this is legal for spiritual purposes all we're saying now is leave the rest of the people alone who are doing it for recreational purposes they don't deserve to go to a prison cell either and of course they've yet to pass these bills no one deserves to go be locked in a cage for possession of a plant or a fungus to alter their consciousness or to express their religious practices any way they choose. It's immoral for anyone to think that. Well, I hope that you do have some people show up. Uh, you're going to Keene Central Square, you said, tomorrow at 420 in the afternoon in New Hampshire? That's correct. All right. Well, yep. I hope I hope some people show up to support you on this, even though it is short notice and even though... You know, unfortunately, the decriminalization bill of the cannabis decrim bill in 2017, it seemed to just take the wind out of the sails of the cannabis legalization movement. It was it was almost as though a lot of the people that were all big advocates for this just kind of basically said, that's good enough. And then they just uh, they just went home and never never came out again to do anything else about this. So I'm not I'm not trying to down, you know, your efforts or anything like that. I uh, just yeah, don't expect a hundred people on on day one. <laughs> right, maybe one or two if I'm lucky. <laughs> right. All right, cool. Well, let us know how it goes, Riley. I will. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the call tonight, and uh, welcome to New Hampshire. Speaking of uh, mushrooms and cow dung, I got into. I, I the one point I wanted to make is I didn't know about this until uh, like a week ago, but the commercial cow feed that you buy at like Tractor Supply or Blue Seal or something mm-hmm. uh, actually has a uh, something put in it to not allow mushrooms to grow Boo. in the cow manure, and a and a guy from Texas uh, that I've been talking with a little bit, a friend of mine, 
he moved here from uh, Texas and he's, you know, into cows and he comes mm -hmm. over my place and he's like, Oh, you got mushrooms growing in your uh, cow manure over there. And mm -hmm. I'm like, yep. And, uh, uh, he, he, I go, you know anything about mushrooms? He's like, well, I don't know what kind of mushrooms those are, but I do know that you're not feeding commercial cow feed. Mm. I'm like, nope, I'm just feeding them barley. and no, Actually, I'm not even feeding any grain right now. I haven't fed any grain in months because uh, I'm finishing my cows grass-fed, but they're just getting hay and and and, and, and haylage. And uh, he says, yep, he, he, they, I forget what the ingredient was called, but he says they put this ingredient. He, uh, I got to ask him again wow. what it is. And it's to uh so there's no no he said so there's no magic mushrooms that grow but basically it's like a thing that doesn't allow any fungus i guess to grow in in the cow manure and this is why like a lot of the big commercial dairy farms like their manure is like so like like um it doesn't like compost right you know it's like hard to use mm -hmm. like in your because it basically has an antifungal and what do you need for your garden to be really like good you need to have a mycelium network when you start taking cow wow. manure from the dairy farm that's you useless know, buying feed from cargill you know because that's mm -hmm. where all the grain comes from that all the local dairies around here has an ingredient in it and i, I do you think I, the feds were up to uh, the ones responsible for this like uh, the dea i gotta actually ask this guy what the uh, ingredients called again mm -hmm. but uh that sounds crazy. like good show prep for next week actually Yeah, that sounds crazy uh, so if you want to comment here, join us at over 603-283-6160. So we're talking about Oregon decrim and uh, the Atlantic article here. So few people consider Measure 110 a success out of the gate, according to Tony Morse, who's the Policy and Advocacy Director for Oregon Recovers. The organization promotes policy solutions to the state's addiction crisis, initially opposed Measure 110, but now supports funding the policy, though it also wants more state money for inpatient treatment and detox services. As Morse put it, quote, if you take away the criminal justice system as a pathway that gets people into treatment, you need to think about what's going to replace it. And I think this mindset is part of the problem, and I want to look closer at that coming up here in hour number three on Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live. It's Free Talk Live. You can join the show. Six zero three two eight three sixty one sixty. We've been focusing tonight on the insane war on drugs, and the first state, Oregon, that has attempted to do something a little unusual, and that is to follow in the footsteps of Portugal and decriminalize possession of all drugs, small amounts of all drugs. They did that in a vote in twenty twenty. But how's it been going? We haven't really, until now, at least I haven't, seen any kind of overview of the results. And thankfully, uh, The Atlantic has published one, and they've looked at various different aspects of this. Jim Hinch is the author, and we've been kind of digging through this and commenting on it as people who, I think I, think I can speak for you, Jay, you want to see an end to the war on drugs. Right. Uh, sorry, I've got you muted. Now you, now I can. Hear yes, you. I do. Uh, and so, you know, we've been longtime advocates of uh, ending the war on drugs here. Now, this isn't a true end to the war on drugs. This is just a step in that direction. So you can't legally buy or sell the drugs. You can't legally manufacture them. So you haven't really got a free market in anything here. So this still incentivizes the fentanyl and the opiates because the. It, it, when there's a black market, mm -hmm. when it's 
when everything's illegal, you know, just like when there was alcohol prohibition, people were going blind because they were making the alcohol so powerful. Yes, that's right. It didn't matter if you had, you know, uh, 200 proof alcohol or if you had, you know, two proof alcohol, you were still going away, you know, or, you know, there was still going to be men with guns enforcing this, you know, prohibition. It doesn't matter what it is. So you take the risk for the more... uh, so Dangerous this, stuff. So this is what brought us, you know, the um, meth. This is what brought right. us... Uh, crack. Crack. Mm-hmm. This is what brought us fentanyl. Um, You're absolutely right. And, and that's a great point. Uh, and, and we actually had Dana uh, from the, uh, the drug testing center up in Vancouver on the show, Dana Larson, uh, several weeks ago, who made the point that when you actually have legalization, you see a trend towards lesser strength versions of these things like you can get cannabis in so many different forms today that are not as strong you can still get the strong stuff but there's a real movement of people that just want to have a a light dose or they want to get the the thc8 or you know cbd uh there's so many different things Uh, you can take it in ways that are less strenuous instead of just smoking it now there's edible uh cannabis as well at various different dosages you can measure your dosage which is of course as you pointed out with uh, the black market in heroin you have no idea if there's fentanyl in there you have no idea what what you're getting from a black market dealer so you're right they haven't solved the problem of the drug quality of the drug consistency by actually legalizing it and making it available through your local walgreens yeah, or like it was 100 years ago exactly uh so that's one problem but what are some of the other problems well it turns out uh the money is a problem you know, we were talking uh, we haven't really gotten into the details on this but we were we were discussing earlier how governments whether they be left authoritarian or right authoritarian governments these are organizations of people who've sought power who want to use that power and the, the money that they get to steal from people through taxes or through printing it, they want to use that power and the money to reward their friends in industry, right? Like, so you get contracts for their buddies or their family members, or they hire their, you know, their son's friends or whatever. There's all the nepotism and stuff that goes on. Well, there's money involved in this too. They mentioned at the beginning of the story, hundreds of millions of dollars, they said, that were going to be going to the so-called treatment programs so instead of funding law enforcement the idea is to fund treatment programs which on its face sounds like a better idea right like because we know that law enforcement isn't making anything better we know that arresting drug users isn't making their lives better it's likely going to result in them being even more impoverished when they get out of jail because if they had a job they probably lost it if they had an apartment they probably lost that too when they get out of jail for the drug possession so we know that that way doesn't work. So why wouldn't it make sense to fund the treatment program? So how's that going? That's what they address here uh, in the story. So uh, Tony Morse, who's from Oregon Recovers, who initially opposed the measure but now supports funding the policy, says, quote, If you take away the criminal justice system as a pathway that gets people into treatment, you need to think about what's going to replace it. And I think that I mentioned before that is part of the problem here, the central concept of uh, managing things from a central location of of government central planners saying well now that we've done the law enforcement isn't there we need to have a government treatment program or we need to have a government way of funding all these other private clinics or whatever it is that uh, that are going to be popping up and what i think should be happening is we should just let the market 
handle this. Instead of having to take in hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis taxes, abolish the cannabis tax, let people buy cannabis at the price that cannabis should be sold without Regulate all the taxes. Regulate like tomatoes. Right. And then let them donate money to the organizations that the individuals believe is helping. Because you know that the money that's going to be coming out of this fund the treatment programs is going to be going to their buddies. It's going to be going to their buddies who are then running these treatment programs, which may or may not be doing things like you talked about before, you know, paying $7,000 a head to take over a hotel and house a bunch of homeless people there for the rest of their lives. So the thing with these treatment uh, programs, so the methadone clinics, <clears throat> so I have uh, uh, someone who's ba- almost a relative that you know was in the methadone clinic for a while. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have two people that are basically relatives that were on the methadone clinic. And I'm like, so when do you get off methadone? And you're like, oh, you don't. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what? So basically the idea, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I understand is there is no getting off of methadone. The idea, the guy, so I had this conversation with two people about the same, one was a woman, um, and she's like, oh, there's, you know, methadone's like you just, it's a maintenance thing and there's no, and, and she's like, I'll ask, what? you know, what, you know, what the, what, what the, um, you know, the, what's the end game here, you know? So, so the, the, the woman I was don't like, believe it. Well, was like, well, no, they don't, there is no end game to get off methadone. You're basically on methadone for the rest of your life. Um, and it's just, you know, a thing. So you don't have the withdrawals and, you know, you're not uncomfortable and, you know, and, you know, I guess detoxing from heroin is like really horrible and the other guy uh i've heard i've heard and I, you know it's just what i've heard and i'm looking into it right now but i've heard that it you're looking at at least a six month uh tapering down if you're going to do it it takes a long time maybe it's six years i don't know i remember hearing a large number uh to get off of methadone get off of heroin that sort of thing but it can be done and in my opinion it absolutely should be done right so i know people who have done it they've, okay. they've gotten themselves weaned off it so one guy but the pharmaceutical industry obviously wants you to be on it for the rest of your life right, right? and and they want a dependency class too that's the other thing too is these people are going to vote to get their methadone they're going to you know vote mm-hmm. to make sure that they got their welfare check for their heroin uh, so this other guy who was uh, into heroin and he was a uh, contractor dude, he framed houses and roofed and did all this, you know, kind of stuff. And he um, uh, was on methadone for six years, maybe he's uh, I don't remember, but it was a long time, you know, six years. And he hadn't done any actual heroin, only methadone. And he would drive to that, you know, methadone clinic every morning uh, before work, get it, get his methadone and go about his day. And he wanted to go snowmobiling, like, you know, way up north in Maine or Canada or something to where you're going to be gone for several days. Mm-hmm. And he uh, weaned himself off to methadone. Uh, he's basically started, you know, just, you know, skipping uh, methadone treatments um, every, good. you know, go going 48 hours with it or whatever, without it and, yeah. you know, or trying to take a smaller dose. I don't know about the dose part, but he definitely skipped some. And he got himself to where he could go. You know, snowmobiling with his buddies, you know. Um, How long did it take? I'll have to ask him again. I still talk to the guy. He's a pretty good guy. Um, but uh, it was a it was a goal that he was working on for a few months and had obtained it. And mm-hmm. he was, you know, very, um, you know, disciplined. And, you know, he was like, ah, I smoke more cigarettes, you know, when I'm, you know, uh, you know, 
working off it or whatever. But he's been, I think he's gone three years now, totally nothing, no, no opiates at all. In fact, he got into an accident where he had to go in the hospital. And he's like, please don't, don't give, give me, me any, more. no yeah. narcotics, no opiates. He's Deal like, pain. he's like, I don't want to be, he goes, yeah. I would rather hurt. Yep. Just, just. You Let know, me feel it. Did, yeah. did, even if I beg you for painkillers, please don't mm-hmm. give me painkillers. Is what he's telling them. And they didn't. Uh, from under, yeah, they didn't. But they were pretty I, I had a friend it. as well, uh, Jay, that I um, in Florida, a roommate of mine who was addicted to, uh, I think it was like oxycodones or hydrocodone, one of those opiate prescription drugs, and he was shooting it up, you know, crushing it up, shooting yep. it up, and uh, he ended up kicking that habit himself by tapering. I believe he tapered down. And was using cannabis actually to mm-hmm. sort of supplement his his need to feel something, right? Like to have something to be addicted to or something to use. Uh, he called it the uh, marijuana maintenance program. Was what he called it. This guy definitely did that. Yeah. Also. Yeah, uh, and it worked for him. You know. Yeah. Uh, another thing too to bring up is uh, ibogaine. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't exactly Barry Cooper know. swears by that stuff. He does ibogaine treatments down in Mexico. Yep. I think. So uh, I worked with a. There was a guy I became good friends with in a Denver Bitcoin Center where I was living in Colorado, mm-hmm. and he ended up working for ibogaineclinic.com, I believe. Mm-hmm. He was like their IT website dude, and his sister um, had been basically hooked on opiates since she was like fourteen years old, <sighs> and she was like twenty six, twenty seven, and as part of like his deal is like, well, I'll do this if you guys ha- send my sister through to treatment. Mm-hmm. And the sister, uh, you know, it's been two years since I've talked to this guy, but you know, five years after the treatment, the sister had not relapsed. She did not go no, back into it. But basically from what I understand is Ibogaine like resets all your dopamine receptors and your stuff in your brain back to like when you were born. Mm. And I could be wrong about that, but that's what I understand about it. Yeah, I've it. never done a lot of research into it, but I know some people swear by it for treating but, this sort of thing. Uh, it's had, um, that guy was very, uh, he was so moved by his sister getting cleaned up. And mm-hmm. and then he, he basically did a thing where he got a whole bunch of people like, you know, to, that he, his sister's friends mm. to, to all go and clean up. And he basically said that everybody who went and did it had very positive results awesome. for a year at least a year or so afterwards you know but the sister had done five years and stayed clean and productive and happy and got her kids back it it turned into a beautiful thing i've heard good things about uh, psychedelic mushrooms as far as treating people with uh, serious addictions as well let's go to the phones here Uh, we got somebody who uh, a caller id says is in portland oregon uh caller you're on free talk live who is this hey this is rusty rusty are you in portland oregon or nearby Yes, I am. All right. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, you've been there in the midst of this drug decriminalization. Uh, what do you have to say about it? Well, Oregon deserves some props, first of all, for being ahead of the class in body freedom. I mean, no other state has pulled this off, and it makes it a very libertarian place despite its liberalness. Mm. But... It's been kind of crazy here because people are very scared of, like, fentanyl, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you got mass disinformation. Like, you got these videos of EMTs and first responders, like, having panic attacks and thinking they're overdosing if they're just in the same room as the stuff. That's weird. Why and would they think that? Because in, like, 2016, the DEA put out some false information saying, like, you could overdose from fentanyl just like by skin contact and stuff. Yeah, that sounds like and, total nonsense. 
So that yeah. is that is nonsense, caller? Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't even see and, why an EMT would even believe that. Well, I mean, right. we have a, a pediatrician in, uh, you know, Concord, New Hampshire that, you know, has D- DCYF going to try to take J.R. Hole's children because J.R. Hole gave him some ivermectin and his pediatrician believed that ivermectin was so dangerous that wow. a guy's children should be taken away That's from crazy. him. So you have a bunch of brain dead idiots, you know, in these positions of authority and power. What do you think, Rusty? Uh, you know, is the are these people, these critics of the drug decriminalization, claiming it's making things worse? Are they are they onto something, or is that total BS? So I just I just think the timing made it okay. The fentanyl crisis hit around the same time, mm-hmm. or a few years before, right? Yep. This was going to happen anyways. There was going to be fentanyl all over the city anyways. Mm. But people, they were trying to pass. Because of the open-air drug use, they were trying to pass some bill in Portland alone to criminalize open-air drug use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they mentioned that here. Now, instead, a bill passed just recently that recriminalizes fentanyl above a gram. And so the mayor of Portland was like, well, that's good enough. I'm not going to do the open-air drug use criminalization thing. Mm-hmm. So, so hold on a second. Um. A gram of fentanyl. That's so, a lot, right? Well, I used to... So there's a drug that we used to give horses that was... You crush it up into a powder and mix it in their grain. Mm-hmm. And one gram of that would... You know, that's quite a bit. Like, you'd give, yeah, like, that... one gram of this butte to, like, an 1,100-pound horse. Yeah, as I understand it, fentanyl, you don't need a lot to get the desired effects, right? But a gram would, right, like, the... fill up, like, three thimbles, right? Or something, or two. I don't know about that. Of, of of this stuff it would, but I don't know if yeah. the same thing is. But that That's sounds how like this lot. bill is going to kill people because it's okay. It says either you can have if you have five grams or more, it's a felony, right? Or twenty five user units. So if you just have twenty five pills or more of the blues, then you're going to get a felony. But you can have up to five grams of the powder fentanyl. Which is way more fentanyl that's in that is in twenty five user units or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's going to incentivize people to use the powder fentanyl, which is injectable, whereas the blues that are going around right now that everybody's doing is not really injectable. What's a and blue? Like a pill. A blue is a little pill. It looks like a, it's like a fake oxy or something. That's just fentanyl. That's what everybody's smoking is these blues. Hmm. It's just fentanyl pills. Is that what's causing like the people on like um, Kensington Street in Philadelphia to be like bent over at the waist and just kind of in that zombie-like yes. thing? Okay. Ba- basically. Now, if the syringe exchanges here have said they're, they're collecting way less uh, syringes now because literally people are switching from injecting heroin to smoking these pills. Wow. Because they like them so much, they're willing to go back to smoking and stop shooting up because mm-hmm. you can't shoot up the pills. But because of the way this bill is worded, it's going to incentivize the powder version. And lots of people. So are people are going to go dying. back to, to shooting up, is what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, Every time they try to fix something, they make it worse, right? That's what it seems like. What other things are you seeing, Rusty? Well, interesting thing you were talking about, like uh, the drug testing, you can't test it and you don't know or whatever. Well, there's like a nonprofit here that got uh, a mass spectrometer. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and drug addicts can bring in samples of whatever they want and they'll they'll test it for you that's awesome and tell you exactly what's in your stuff that is really really awesome uh have you ever gone down there have you met any of the people involved in that uh yeah do you it's know called outside in outside in is the nonprofit. okay yeah, that sounds a lot like what Dana Larson is doing up in Vancouver, the guy we interviewed several weeks, if not a couple months ago, uh, who did the exact same thing. He got drug testing equipment, like high-quality equipment, not just chemical tests, but actual you know, spectrometer-type things, and uh, they are doing the exact same thing. You can come in there for free. You don't have to pay for this service. You can have your drugs tested of all sorts. They'll tell you, you know, wait around for 10 minutes, you get the results, and then you at least know what you're putting into your body. And that is a big, big help for people that have, in most cases, no clue what they're buying on the on the black market. Do, do you uh, use any of these uh, substances yourself? No. Uh, okay. But it sounds but like you know people the, who do. Yeah. I mean... It, Anybody who lives in Portland knows somebody who does. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you feel about um, how long you've been in Portland for? About a decade. So has this uh, drug decriminalization, in your opinion, made Portland a better place to be or a worse place to be? Um, I, don't, I don't know the answer Well, I think he said, what he said earlier, Jay, was he thinks it was just bad timing because he thinks that whether or not the drug decrim happened you were going to see the fentanyl overdoses well, shooting up, and so so to speak. Yep. Happening. On top of that, we're dealing with the economic implications of the lockdowns happened right then, too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, businesses are going out of business. Like, we got economic problems going on. Right. Taxpayers are leaving. Taxes Which is what going leads up, to so. people to use more drugs. As I was saying earlier, when people yeah. are bummed out and they, they think their life is terrible and they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel... Uh, and we predicted, by the way, when the lockdowns went into effect, we said there's going to be more drug overdoses. There's going to be more people that fall off the wagon that maybe yep. they'd quit using drugs are going to start using drugs. And we said there's going to be more suicides. And all of that stuff came true because those people right. didn't have anything to live for, at least so they thought. So, so you probably know some folks that are like living on the street and basically just career drug addicts, uh, for lack of a better description. Oh, yeah. And are those folks uh, receiving some form of uh, welfare, uh, bet, you know, that you're aware of? <laughs> some of them, yes. Okay, so yeah. do you know some folks that are like living in, you know, in 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 the drug encampments that aren't receiving any form of welfare? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and so what do they people. do for money? How how are they coming up? Uh, you know, funding They're probably selling hobby. drugs. <laughs> well, a lot of, a lot of them have jobs. Really? Okay. Like even the homeless ones? Yes. Okay. They just want to live on the streets so they don't have to pay rent, right? Yeah, they don't have money for rent, but they yeah. have a job. Okay. <laughs> they have money for drugs, and, and, not rent. And what kind of jobs are these guys working? Because if you're like, I don't know, a homeless guy, you know, working a retail job might be a little, you know, in, you know, not tolerable for mm-hmm. the customers. So do, do you know what kind of like jobs these guys work? Well, there's like, you know, like, uh, like one guy I know works at a laundromat, okay. for instance. Mm-hmm doing like security right. and it's like a 24-hour laundry mat yeah sure i mean people yep. working in factories they don't have to smell great sure okay right? yep yeah. yeah 
All right. Very interesting, Rusty. Anything else you want to share about your experience tonight? Well, I got one oh, more question. Jay's got another Rusty. question. Go ahead. So back to the you know, so the you know, welfare correlation thing. Um, so you know some folks that have overdosed. Um, of the people that you personally know that have overdosed on these substances, are they more of the working class guys or more of the like the welfare recipient type? Uh both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. But I do know a good number that are not on welfare. And I also know quite a few that are not homeless either. So, I mean, there's all stripes. The problem is the most visible of the the fentanyl users and the other drug users are the homeless ones. Those are the ones sure. you're going to see smoking on the street because they don't have anywhere else to smoke. Do you but believe that, uh, I mean, from the people that you know, do you know anybody who specifically moved to Oregon so they could do drugs? wondering why interesting rusty thanks for the call tonight man i appreciate your expertise and your experience appreciate your call uh the number here is 603-283-6160 that's 603-283-6160 if you want to weigh in we got time for you coming up here on free talk live you can join us it's ian and jay we're coming up Grateful to hear from somebody who's actually in Portland. Uh, we had, I think it was Rusty, call in a moment ago. It's Ian and Jay tonight. The number is 603-283-6160. We're sharing a story from The Atlantic, which is very in-depth. There's no chance we're going to get through it. It's very long. Um, but lots to talk about in here. And, of course, we'll share that with you on our social media site, which you can join. And you can interact with other Free Talk Live listeners. Some of the hosts are there as well. It's over at social.freetalklive.com. Once again, that is social.freetalklive.com. We're running our own server. We set the rules, and there aren't many rules. One of the rules is no spamming, and the other rule is no snitching. If you uh, see somebody on the site you don't like, you don't like their opinions about something, then just hit the block button. We don't want to hear about it. Uh, so head over at social.freetalklive.com. Uh, I want to go back to the story here from The Atlantic. And we are talking about Measure 110, which passed in 2020. This allowed the decriminalization of small amounts of all drugs, including you know crack or methamphetamine, heroin, etc. And is this a success? Has this been a success? Well, what Rusty pointed out a moment ago in Portland, he's in the thick of it there. He says he thinks that it was bad timing. Because some of the numbers have gone up. Some of the addiction, uh, you know, death numbers, that sort of thing, have gone up. He said that probably would have happened anyway because the fentanyl use was on the rise. And decriminalization isn't necessarily going to stop people from using drugs. Although we had seen numbers in Portugal for the last two decades that suggested uh, that uh, almost immediately there were fewer people with problems with addiction. More people were seeking treatment, that sort of thing. So they're saying that they think that the answer is to put more money from the government into treatment. And I think one of the problems with that, first of all, they're, they've absolutely failed, apparently, at handling the money. They get into that later on in this, in this story. As always, every yeah. government project. Right. Um, but you know what they're going to do is they're going to give money to buddies of the people in the government. And that's going to be incredibly wasteful because whenever 
whenever you're spending other people's money, even if you aren't corrupted, which of course it will tend to do anyway, but even if you aren't a corrupted individual, you will still be better or you're going to be better at spending your own money. You're going to be more judicious with it. You're going to be more choosy about how you spend that money. Whereas if it's somebody else's money and there's no real, you know, accountability for it, maybe you're not going to pay as much attention. Maybe you're not going to be as concerned. We see that all the time with uh, with government handouts. It's not being done effectively. That's why government welfare is doing such a piss poor job and Private charities like the Salvation Army, for instance, can actually do a much better job at helping people for a fraction of the price. A little uh, uh, explanation uh, about this, how wasteful government is. So in 2007 or 2008 campaign year, we uh, hosted what was called the uh, we did a thing called the Massachusetts Liberty Riders. So my dad and I, we would go load up a a trailer full of horses and go to these parades and put any Liberty candidate on a horse. And we would end up um, uh, <clears throat> riding them through whatever. But there was this one guy, his name was Cummel Jane. He was a second generation or first generation, uh, second generation Indian fella. He was an accounting guy. He was, um, uh, he worked in the, some accounting department for the state. Hmm. And he, one of the things he did is he had like sort of like um, interns that were, from like colleges that he could, you know, have them work on assignments. So one of the things they did is they calculated that uh, how much did it cost for every one dollar of welfare that a welfare recipient got? How much did it cost the taxpayer? How many dollars did they have to pay to, to give one dollar out to it somebody? Was 42, I was gonna Forty-two dollars. Ah, okay. I was gonna I was gonna guess low. I was thinking like eight or ten or something for, like that. For every wow. one dollar a welfare recipient received in welfare. <laughs> Um, this is it, state welfare. Yep, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, it was it cost taxpayer forty two dollars, and this guy was running for I believe state auditor, and he actually worked Amazing. in the auditor's office. That's what it was, auditor, and he was running for. So this was one of his campaign things. Mm-hmm. Was like nobody's talking about this, mm-hmm. and you know it's 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 and and you know it's just forty. I mean that's why taxes. That's forty two dollars yep. going to the bureaucrats, going yep. to their buddies, going to the contractors, right? Yep. So yep. you know you get a family that's getting twelve hundred dollars ridiculous in, in in these assistance, and uh, and it's costing you know the tax slaves like fifty you know fifty grand a month to give these people twelve hundred dollars a month. <laughs> it's crazy. It is insane, uh, and and that is something that absolutely needs to end. So that same thing you're talking about there, Jay, with the ridiculous ratio of spending is going to go on with this treatment money. The millions of or dozens or hundreds of millions of dollars that they have from the cannabis taxes that they're going to be doling out to these treatment centers, yep. it's going to be the exact same thing where they're spending 20, 30 times as much as they really need to spend. So they're not going to be giving people the help uh, that they need to, like an efficient organization that actually has to earn its money. That's the difference, right? Like a, a private charity that isn't on the government dole has to earn your support. They have to show you that they're actually helping people. They have to show you that they're doing it affordably, that they're spending. Uh, the typical sh- uh, target is like, you know, it, it's a 90% uh, of any organization, it's a private charity. If you can get that 90% of the don- donations going to the actual purpose of the charity instead of paying overhead, you're a really good charity. That's like, that's what you want to shoot for. So and a lot of them do. A lot of them make that. The state does two things. They do what's called deficit spending to where they essentially borrow money that's created out of thin air. Mm-hmm. 
And then they point guns at people to force them to pay taxes. They do. Uh, so many advocates, according to the Atlantic story here on drug decrim in Oregon, say the new policy simply needs more time to prove itself. Even if they also acknowledge that parts of the ballot measure had flaws, advocates worked closely with lawmakers on an oversight bill that passed last month. Quote, we're building the plane as we fly it, said a program supervisor at a homeless services provider in Portland who helped put the measure on the ballot. Haven Wheelock said further, we tried the war on drugs for 50 years and it didn't work. It hurts my heart every time someone says we need to repeal this before we even give it a chance. Now, the good news is it has not been repealed. I don't know if that's going to pass. Hopefully it doesn't, because I do agree that as flawed as this is, it is still a step in the right direction. They say here that Measure 110 went into effect at a time of dramatic change in U.S. drug policy. Departing from precedent, the Biden administration has endorsed an increased federal funding for a public health strategy called harm reduction. Rather than pushing for abstinence, harm reduction emphasizes keeping drug users safe. For instance, through the distribution of clean syringes and overdose reversal medications. The term harm reduction appeared five times in the ballot text of Measure 110, which forbids funding recipients from mandating abstinence. And I agree with harm reduction as a policy. I think it is generally a good idea. The, the idea is essentially you accept that drug users and more importantly, drug abusers, because drug users don't have a problem. They just like to do drugs occasionally. Drug abusers, you know they're going to do the drugs. You know they do them because they do them when they're prohibited. You know they don't care about the law because they'll get arrested. Then then they'll get right back out and they'll keep doing drugs. So, like, it hasn't solved – it being illegal hasn't solved the problem. So you accept that these people, they're going to do drugs unless we can solve the problem at the root and give them some sort of you know positive view on life and change the, their perspective. You know they're going to do it. So the idea of harm reduction is let's make it so they can do them without overdosing, without getting drugs that are tainted. So the what Rusty gave us the example of that uh, facility that you can go to in Portland, walk in, give them a sample of your drugs, have them test it. I suspect they're doing it for free, like the the place in Vancouver is doing it, and actually find out what you're about to put into your veins or into your bloodstream. That is a harm reduction measure, and it is something that actually can save people's lives because people knowing what they're doing is one of the things that you almost never get in the black market. And and let's not forget uh, who's um, one of the the biggest importer of drugs into the into the United States of America is the government. Uh, So we've had Silver Dave on the show, uh, former Mm -hmm. Special Forces, and he reports that Afghanistan was basically, you know, where uh, that the military was, you know, essentially uh, subsidizing and, you know, participating in the cultivation, the harvesting, the the processing. He said they were guarding the the crops. Guarding the crops. Poppy fields. They were, they were, um, there was like drug, you know, heroin processing facilities that, uh, they were not allowed to do anything about, um, you know, they could have just totally, the, the U S government could, could totally stop the whole, you know, could in Afghanistan, you know, was <laughs> militaries from 70 nations of the world occupied Afghanistan. And it was literally the, during that time, and there's newspaper, Washington post articles on this, uh, mm-hmm. uh, opium production increased, uh, mm-hmm. uh 8,000% since you, while the U S right. was occupying because, the politicians want want the junkies. The politicians want the dependent class. Absolutely. Uh, if you are an addict, 
you are the ultimate slave. And here's another thing uh, we need to know. Or, 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 well, oh, so in the 80s, what was it? It was the CIA basically invented crack uh, and was very much behind that. This, this, Ron Paul is quoted several times discussing, you know, how when the CIA didn't have to report how they made their, you know, so the CIA didn't need to ask government for funding, could, could do their own funding, and they didn't have to. Because they were selling drugs. Be, because they were selling all these drugs. Mm-hmm. So they're pushing the cocaine, they're pushing the crack. Uh, they're creating this epidemic, um, you know, mm-hmm. in all the cities. They were targeting, you know, black people, black communities uh, with crack, uh, these designer drugs. Um, you know, it, where did fentanyl come from? You know, uh, fentanyl is extremely addictive. Oh, they want to blame China for that one, Jay. Well, maybe. I mean, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, China's government, the CCP and the American government, the CIA. I mean, we know Biden's bought and paid for by the Chinese, by the Ukrainian, um, you know, uh, you know, and and uh, and the thing is too is like if you don't want your kids to be on drugs, uh, one of the first things you can do is not let them use internet devices. You know, you know, <laughs> within the first six years yeah. of of their life, because the part of the brain that is stimulated by the internet device mm. is the same part of the brain that's stimulated by cocaine yeah. and opiates. So, like, uh, you know, stop using these internet devices as pacifiers and babysitters. Stop stimulating that part of the brain. Also, stop feeding your kids sugar. Stop feeding them fake sugar and all these seed oils and junk food because, you know, sh- sugar is, is actually the gateway drug. It, you know, I mean, that, that white sugar yeah. that, you know, you buy in a five-pound bag in the store is the same exact mechanical process is used to uh, make cocaine as it is sugar, you know, from uh, molasses and you know, but yeah, well, that's a whole other story about you right. know, sugar taxes and uh, incentives and government subsidies and all that nonsense. But just don't get your kids into it, you know, even tickle or stimulate the part of the brain that is going to really respond when they try a little bit of, you know, one of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the doctor gives them an opiate when they're, you know, 15 years old and they get their arm busted in a, you know, football ac- you know, accident or a car accident or whatever. And, you know, they, the doctor gives them something that's an opiate. If that part of the brain um, that, you know, that opiate is going to stimulate has a lot of neurological pathways made to it because the kid sat in front of an Internet device mm-hmm. for, you know, those brain development years. It um, could get them hooked worse is what you're saying. Absolutely. So they say backers of Measure 110 said the law was modeled on drug policies in Portugal where personal drug possession was decriminalized two decades ago. But Oregon's enforcement and treatment referral system differs from Portugal. Users caught with drugs in Portugal are referred to a civil commission that evaluates their drug use and recommends treatment if needed with civil sanctions for noncompliance. So it's not like they just cut you you know, loose and let you walk away. There's still a system there. Portugal's state-run health system also funds a nationwide network of treatment services, many of which focus on sobriety. Sutton says drafters of Measure 110 wanted to avoid anything that might resemble a criminal tribunal or coercing drug users into treatment. Quote, people respond best when they're ready to access those service, services in a voluntary way. And I totally agree with him. This is the director of external relations for the Drug Policy Alliance uh, I, who they're interviewing here. I think if you're pretty comfortable getting your uh, getting your disability check and smoking your crack like my uncle did until the day he died, mm-hmm. um, you're not interested in any treatment. No, but should you be forced into it? Uh, well, I don't think you should be forced into it. But you know, if you are, if 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 you're committing crimes, if you're stealing from people and mm-hmm. stuff like that, I mean, something, something <laughs> is so. 
he was stealing things from you know literally my grandmother family you know, members my entire life mm-hmm. oh and other random people mm-hmm. and like he actually you like um <laughs> i w- i went into a walmart with him about eight years ago in cobaskill new york i had picked him up for something to help me out and and uh he uh, security walks right up to us and says, "You can't be in this Walmart." <laughs> and and uh, what? It, wow. And the security guy let me. You know, he's fine with me, but they just escorted him right out of the store. And uh, he's like, "Hey, can I have the key to the truck?" I'm like, "No, no. I'll, I'll be I'll be back there." <laughs> Go pawn the truck. <laughs> well, whatever. You know, yeah. Some tools or something. But uh, so Jeez. so uh, the security guy goes, "Oh yeah, we have um you know facial recognition software, really? and we were alerted as soon as you guys were in the parking Whoa. lot. And basically, we were like, you know, that's awesome. Twenty feet in the door." And well, you look at a Walmart; it's it, it's like a prison or, or or a casino with all the yeah, cameras yeah, they have. Yeah, a lot of cameras. There. But uh, you know, this that's was, impressive. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was upstate New York, like eight or ten mm-hmm. years ago, and they're like, "Yeah, facial recognition," and we were alerted. And basically, I was at the back of the store. The guy says, and it took me from here to get to you. Yep, to I'm fine with leave. that. By the way, I, I don't care if a private company wants to use that technology. Yeah, yeah that, I that, think that makes sense, and, and that works good because he had stolen so much stuff from him right. over the years, and and uh, he's a liability. And, he's a walking and, liability. And he, and and any Walmart he goes to in the country, he just can't go into oh, it. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, from what yeah, I understand. Makes sense. Uh, people respond, he says, when they're ready to access the services in a voluntary way. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, almost immediately after taking effect, Measure 110 encountered problems. A state audit published this year found the new law was vague about how state officials should oversee the awarding of money to the new treatment programs. Of course. It set unrealistic timelines for evaluating and funding those treatment proposals. And as a result, the funding process was left largely to the grant-making panel, most of whose members, quote, lacked experience in designing, evaluating, and administrating a governmental grant application process. So there's all this bureaucracy around this money. They got all this money. They want to give it out, supposedly, but good luck getting to it. Good luck getting through the mountain of paperwork that you would need to get this funding. Whereas, again, if we just simply allowed the market to work, allowed people to keep the money that they earn in the first place and donate it to the organizations doing the good work, this would be solved instantaneously. I mean, that's not, not all problems will be solved, but the, 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 the problem of distribution of resources will be solved by those who are most efficient at doing that. They will be the ones that rise to the top. They will be the ones with the success stories. Like here in town in, in Keene, there's a homeless shelter that is privately run. And they've been around now for more than, I don't know, f- roughly 15 years. And they do this. I mean, they do take a little bit of money from the from the city, but it's by no means a, you know, a huge chunk of their budget. So they do this on largely donations from people because they can point to the success stories that they've had, helping people who are homeless actually get into housing, actually get jobs, you know, showing the wins, essentially, and getting people excited about it and funding what they do. Uh, The audit described a chaotic process with more than a dozen canceled meetings, potential conflicts of interest in the selection of funding recipients. Huh. That's a shock there. You got buddies lining up for this. Lines of applicant evaluations left blank. Full distribution of the first biennial payout of cannabis tax revenue. $302 million was earmarked for this. That's a lot of money for harm reduction, housing, and other services. Didn't occur until late 2022, almost two years after the measure passed at the ballot. Figures released by the state last month show that in the second half of 2022, recipients of Measure 110 funding provided some form of service to roughly 50,000 quote-unquote clients 
though the Oregon Health Authority has said that a single individual could be counted multiple times in that total. A study released last year by public health researchers in Oregon found that as of 2020, more than 650,000 Oregonians required but were not receiving treatment for a substance use disorder. So this is a failure of centralized control. This is a failure of the state, ultimately. But it's not a failure for the state, for the centralized controllers. It's all profit to them. Another thing we can look at is uh, we talk about Mike Gill once in a while. Uh, Mike he's Gill, a researcher here in New Hampshire, right? Well, he's a lot of things. But mm-hmm. so anyways, Mike Gill is a guy who he used to run a thing called New Hampshire State of Corruption, which all states are states of corruption. Of course. And But basically, he says that the governor, Sununu, that Gene Shaheen, who is a um, uh, he talks about uh, Shaheen or Shanahan. Uh, one of them's a uh, uh, a federal representative. Shaheen. Is Shaheen. Uh, how Shaheen's husband runs his like New Hampshire trust thing. They're attorneys. And yep. And they're uh, yeah. And and they're run, and 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 they're they're basically trafficking all the fentanyl through this you know New Hampshire trust and there's a New Hampshire trust called you know the Boston Bank trust something or another and. He talks about how uh, all, you know all this money, all these drugs and money are being trafficked by the government. Mm-hmm. The government's doing it. You know, it's the lawyers, it's the accountants, it's the bankers. It's just, it's just it's the same people that Jesus Christ had a hard time with. Um, you know who, who you know who are doing all the same evil deeds. More today. things change, the more they remain the same. And uh, and 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 he you know goes on and on about this. And so you know the thing is is how are all these drugs getting to all of these drug encampments and users? Um, and it's with a lot of help from corrupt government officials, uh, from, you know, the, the thing with Afghanistan to the thing with getting it in from China to, you know, all, all these border patrol and customs guys, they know what, they know who's coming through with the drugs. I mean, there's a, there's these stories how there's like one guy was like smuggling drugs and he would pay a border patrol guy $40,000 cash a month. Sure. And be like, the other way. I'm, I'm going to be driving car, you know, such and such with a license plate. You know, what lane are you going to be in? Mm-hmm. He says to the border, yeah. border patrol guys, oh, I'm at lane number three and I'll be coming through there. And, you know, and so this is just happening at every level. Sure does. It's, yeah. and, and, it, and it's and literally every city. Police department is in on it. Almost every sheriff department is in on it. Even if the sheriff doesn't know about it, there's a whole bunch of guys within his department, you know, organizing this, making this happen. Um, And it's just very easy to look the other way. And it's very convenient. This is prohibition, what you're describing. I mean, anytime you have this, whether it's alcohol or the current prohibition, the results are always the same. The corruption is rife. And this is where a a blanket, straight up, you know, like Daryl Perry used to always say, uh, you know, you regulate heroin like uh, tomatoes is going to take all these guys out of it. That's right. All and that's why they push thing. so hard. That's it, why they want to keep things right. the status quo. Yeah. And, they don't want to lose that re, uh, that revenue. And, 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 and the judges are happy to convict the drug addicts and put them into jails because the judges make money. Everybody just makes money. They're all invested in their court registry investment scheme. They're all shareholders in these private prisons. They're shareholders in these companies that service the prisons if they can't legally own shares in the prisons. It's just, it's such a scam. So let's talk about other failures here. Meanwhile, the new law enforcement provisions have proved ineffectual. Of 5,299 drug possession cases filed in Oregon Circuit Court since the decrim went into effect, 3,381 resulted in a recipient failing to pay the fine or appear in court and facing no further penalties, which, as far as I'm concerned, that's good news. 
According to the Oregon Judicial Department, about 1,300 tickets were dismissed or pending. A state audit found that during its first 15 months in operation, the treatment referral hotline received just 119 calls. This is in 15 months. 119 people called for the treatment referrals, which cost state taxpayers, or I guess cannabis users, because again, they're taking money from the cannabis taxes, $7,000 per call. So they took the budget of this hotline (laughs) and divided it uh, by the 119 calls. Of course. A survey of law enforcement officers conducted by researchers at Portland State University found that as of July 2022, officers were issuing an average of just 300 drug possession tickets a month statewide compared with 600 drug possession arrests per month before the measure took effect and close to 1,200 monthly arrests prior to the outbreak of COVID-19. So they are still uh, issuing hundreds of tickets but it is a fraction of what they were doing just a few years ago. And again, that's that's good news as far as I'm concerned. I, you know, they cannot arrest their way out of this problem, and they can't ticket their way out of the problem either. And the Drug Policy Alliance guy they interviewed earlier is absolutely right. If you take somebody who is a drug addict and who is intending to continue being a drug addict, and you tell that person, well, now you have to go to treatment— you're actually harming the other people who are in oh, that yeah. treatment program. You see this in AA where part of the probation mandate uh, or parole mandate is that they go to AA meeting like, you know, right. twice a week or something. And and then the people who are there, you know, because they're ordered to be there are, you know, they're making it uncomfortable for the people who are actually there wanting to, you know, receive, yep. get help. Those people who want the help do not need to be around people who are going to egg them on into other, you know, going back into their addictions or possibly sell them some drugs or whatever. Uh, Out of time for tonight, you can join us uh, between now and the next show over at freetalklive.com, and you can join us online anytime. Check out our social media at social.freetalklive.com, our chat server at chat.freetalklive.com, and we'll see you soon. If you want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate, well, I know a guy who's really great. It's the Realtor Mark Warden. Now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in New Hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime. Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com. Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. PorcupineRealEstate.com